Whoever you claim... Oh, man. I do this every time. It's got to be right here. Just, well, there it is. Whoever you claim to lead, if they will not follow you, you do not lead them. Hey, Internet. Hey, hey, breathe. Take a moment. Do it. Do it. Do it. Breathe. Regenesis and Metaformation. Hey, Internet. He is risen. Listen, listen. Hear this now. You just took a deep breath. Let that oxygen percolate up in your brain. Do it again. And listen, he is risen. You are paid for. That makes you immortal now. And Jesus Christ is not going to be long anyway. Now, if you don't know the water seals that the food feeds, you got to find a pastor to help you with that one. Here on the Mad Christian Saturday Morning Chill, what I'm going to do is remind you that this dark, evil age that you sojourn and wander through is not the paradise that you thought it was, that you think it is, that you constantly are tempted to believe it might be. But it is, in fact, instead a veil of tears a, a dry bone encrusted bankrupt fire pit about to be. And, you know, the Pinocchio Island, Alice in Wonderland's got it feeling pretty nice in the casino. Brief history of power. You should be a listener. I, I'm here to remind you, even if you're not a listener to that, that there is something so much more significant that is coming than what we are currently experiencing. And that is the return of the ascended Lord, Savior, King, Jesus Christ. And that his impending return, which, which shall be soon enough, and you go ahead and just sit there and argue about what soon means if that matters to you. The fact is gonna be resurrection, done, ascension, happened, return, promised. That waiting for that is our life as Christians, right? This is great. We get to look forward to that because we know this zombie apocalypse, yes it is, of ignorance. Uh, it is not worth setting down roots in. Oh, no, 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 no. You don't want your roots growing up amongst the tares. Please, please don't do that. Don't do that. So here to remind you about that, as always, uh, your questions, Bible answers, and my nonsense coming along as well. Uh, here's some thoughts. So so breathe, breathe. I'm not going to make you do this too much on on the podcast, but this is uh, my, my Wednesday night in Rockford, local only, advertised here. Stop by, join us sometime, 7 p.m. starting after Easter this year. There will be times when it does not happen, but uh, I will be having a open class that is geared toward wisdom and prayer, uh, developing a, a wise prayer life. So this is not you know a Bible study per se, although it certainly will involve the Bible and will involve probably Greek and Hebrew as well. So breathe is what that is called. And you're invited next time you're in Rockford to stop by, uh, bring your Bible. Uh, here, here's, uh, here's what you need. The disciple will need. This is why I brought that. I think this is important, like wherever you are now. Now forget what I just advertised and take this as information that really could be useful to you where you are now. You're a disciple. Doesn't matter who you're a disciple of. You are one. Man is made to be one. Woman by extension is also one. So wherever you are, you're a disciple. Whether you're aware of what you're learning or not is a different question. You may just be following a model like a mimic, mindlessly, oh, zombie-esque even, yes? Uh, but then again, you might not. How would you know? Well, the way is a disciple will need, this is so amazing. I mean, in the modern world, we can do this. I've rejected modernism, but I'm thankful for paper and pen, okay? Paper and pen or pencil, if you prefer, doesn't matter. But a disciple, if you really want to, in this age right now, with the mass media mind control going on around us, you want to get clarity with your own head, you're going to need a paper, a pen, and help to have an English Bible. That's, that's like where you should begin. And then you're going to be like writing down what the Bible says. 
and then asking questions and rereading and going back, right? You should be doing that as a disciple of Jesus Christ. That is, that is such a gift. It's true. This is, don't ever make a law of this. Christianity has existed with far less individual capacity than we are competently able to have right now and maybe need right now because of our context and how bad it is. So I'm not saying that in the Middle Ages they could do this. They couldn't, but now we can, and now we kind of do need to. So the tools are here for us if we will grab them. As you watch the institutional world collapse around you and you realize, oh my goodness, there might not be a church here in 20 years. Well, grab your Bible, grab a pen and paper, and realizing that, realize that praying the Psalms is the first thing you should do. And once you start letting your mind control itself with the words from the Psalter, understood as Jesus Christ being Lord, the Savior who loves you through all that New Testament goodness, that you could just read right into that those prayers. Let me suggest that that uh, circle, triangle, uh, geometric shape of your preference, that practice, habit, uh, is the most important thing for you to do right now in the white noise. Huh? Um, could you go out in a cave and do it audibly? Probably. Would you want to? Not me. So, <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm going to take this tact on it. Uh, I, I mean, why do I say that? I really am like learning to envy the oral culture, right? Cultures that were able to retain information just by talking about it. We can't do that. We, we have too much information and it's so easy to discard stuff when it seems like there's a fire, right? So you're like, we're going to remember this for a long time. Someone's like, fire, like, get rid of it. And then like a year later, like, did something change? And, and it just keeps happening to our civilization. <laughs> brief history of power. If you're not listening again, that'd be the key in for that. But you want to just kind of get control of your own mind. You want to learn how to breathe in the midst of the storm to maybe realize that you're in the eye of the storm after all, because you are the one who, uh, the apple of the eye of Christ, right? That he has his eye on you as much as and more than the sparrow. Uh, well, again, the disciple will need, I suggest to you, try it, uh, a paper, pen, uh, and or yeah, pencil, <laughs> and then your English Bible. You might desire, if you ever stop by on se- at 7 p.m. on uh, Wednesday nights in Rockford, uh, your Greek Bible or Hebrew Bible. I may have pronounced, I may not. You may also want something to sit on because uh, there's no tables. You can use a chair, but um, the floor will be encouraged. The floor will be encouraged. All right, enough of that. All right, well, well no, no, not enough of that because what, what do I want to teach? What do I want to teach? Why am I doing this? I've learned so many wonderful things since COVID from the Bible, from opening it with a pen and a paper uh, and writing. And it's as opposed to, as opposed to living in the Microsoft publisher version of, of the Bible, uh, which I was doing as a pastor generally instead. Uh, and this is not to say that Logos software and other, other uh, tools are, are useless. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying there's like an amplification that's missing if it never gets into analog. Uh, it's like a, it's like a catalyzing reality that you really need to have. And when I started doing that, thankfully, in the midst of COVID, right? In the midst of all that, I'm reading Job. <laughs> this verse, this verse is so good. Do you see how blessed is the man whom God reproaches? The Hebrew there is yakak, yakak to reproach. Do not refuse the discipline of Yahweh, Jehovah, the Lord, however you want to pronounce it. I say Jesus Christ when I read my Bible to myself. Do not refuse the discipline of Jesus Christ. And there, discipline 
Sounds a lot like discipleship, like go and make disciples of all nations, that thing we yammer about all the time but don't do much of, yeah? Uh, yeah. Do not refuse the discipline, discipleship of Jesus Christ. That word discipline there, wouldn't you know, is the word musar. You might have heard me say this word before. There are three words in Hebrew that I think make a perfect triangle. Uh, you can find them in Hebrews, uh, Hebrews, in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 2a. Uh, uh, they are uh, yada. And Musar, discipline, to figure out what that means, to solve for what that means. Especially when it's like translated as things like insight. <laughs> it's like, okay, what's that mean? As opposed to discipline, which even Jocko can talk about, right? To realize that the discipline of Jesus Christ, when he disciples you, uh, that this is by reproaching you, actually. <laughs> Do you see how blessed is the man whom God rebukes? One of the most disturbing things about the American church environment is how little any of us are willing to be rebuked. Have you noticed that? We're all very willing to think about how others ought to be rebuked. But our own our own ability is just quite weak, I think. Atrophied would be the word. And I think maybe we're just so stunned from staring at all the blue light that we haven't had time to realize how we're treating each other. And to look at say, the, uh, the culture inspired by the New Testament, uh, books like James and First Peter and Romans, like in those cultures, they really didn't, it was expected you wouldn't treat each other the way that most American churches that I've, I've I'm talking across denominations because I got converts coming from places and they're like, you won't believe what's going on. So like the way we treat each other, this isn't about salvation. This isn't about how you're justified. This is about who is the king. This, we know who is the king. We know what his blood has paid for. The question is, do you, do you remember that you've inherited this? And a sign that you as a group might be about to fall off a cliff is when you're all hating each other. Like, you all together might be corporately moving out of Christianity, right? What's going to happen on Judgment Day to you, your heart, and your cat? I don't know. That's Jesus, right? Jesus does that. I'm glad Jesus does that. Don't ask me that. But I can tell you corporately, once you stop having the Bible exist is what you talk about, You put it in his place, some other thing that you believe God needs. And then you try to keep that thing from ever falling apart. And then when it starts to fall apart, you start to hate each other over the ways it's falling apart. And by the time that all of that is done, like none of your kids go to that church anymore. So like that reality needs to be headed off by love, patience, gentleness. How can you do that? How can you find that? How can you find the time for that? I need more coffee, right? Right? So that's just it. How do you contemplate? How do you pull back? How do you receive the reproach of Jesus Christ on a schedule? That's, that's a tough question. That was the question I had to ask for me, right? So don't, don't, don't go like, oh, he's preaching to me. I'm preaching to me still. I'm preaching to me still. Uh, coming out of this, though, I mean, that's the kind of thing I want to wrestle with at the Breathe class, though, is how does a person contemplate the actual discipline of their life, the cross that you see going on around you right now, how do you contemplate that in a way which is godly, which is what prayer ultimately is. You're going to speak words to God as a result of this. You're also going to, if you're in the scriptures, going to receive words from God in the midst of this. So if you you understand prayer, less is about like my checklist for God to make sure it gets done this week, right? And see it instead as the habit of living in, with, and as the word of God in real time and space, the Holy Spirit's preceding work from Father and Son is doing this to all Christians. 
there's just a big muffle on American ones, right? Because we're, we're too busy thinking the life's about entertainment. Like Jesus saved us. So we have a good time while we wait. <laughs> you know? So, so repenting of that, finding the rebuke of that is such good news to me personally. It's so enlivening it, it kind, of, kind of shifting gears, but not really for any of you men out there that are struggling with masculinity or what it means to grow up in an age without ritual or rites of passage, or in which you were always told that you're wrong just for being a guy. And it's getting worse. If you haven't noticed, um, that, uh, that reality can really be set free by this kind of discipline as well, because uh, like I started the show off saying, we live in, we, we, we live in upside down world. We live in Pinocchio's Island. We are, we are completely down the rabbit hole with Alice and the screens should tell you that now, but it's always been this way. The world is backwards. The world is backwards. We'll get into that a little bit more with things like uh, soldier questions later today. Um, but as you realize the world is backwards, that's very, very invigorating. Like, Oh, like it's the same planet Jesus was walking on. All the stuff he says true, and these people all nuts. Wow, look at this. Look what we're doing. We're crazy peoples. My goodness. Wow, he's, he could come back any minute now too. We're killing babies everywhere. Oh my goodness. You know, right? Like it's a different place to be. It's invigorating though. It is. It's real life. It's not some like, well, let's pretend that the Avengers are going to save us and argue about Thanos' personal convictions. Right? Like, I mean, that's telling us what's going on. We're going to talk about drunkenness later, too. Uh, don't get me going. Um, one other thing I really want to drive home, though, in more of a positive sense, is this. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm reengaging my Lutheran culture after my year off with COVID. We all kind of had this version of it. And many, many pastors who I know were like, let's rethink what I was doing because it seems I misplaced a few emphases if if you follow. Yeah. And so uh, one of the things I did was I stepped away from issues, et cetera, and really any other media things. I I was turning down speaking requests. I probably will still keep doing that. Um, But uh, uh, I I got the opportunity to re-engage issues, issues, et cetera. And if you haven't found this show yet, this show has been so valuable to me in history. It was a... It was my gateway drug into Lutheranism, definitely, like pulled me into where the confessions proclaim Christ more than uh, anything else in the midst of a controversy that could have distracted them over many, many things. Um, so issues has been great for me and they've, and they've had me on then as well. I've been blessed to be a speaker at their events and things like that. Um, and so being off for a year, it was, it was, it was good for me, I think, but to be able to re-engage now on Proverbs on Proverbs. So every week, I don't know if they've got an actual time slot where they're going to put me in. I record on Wednesdays, but every week uh, they're going to be slotting me in uh, to do a chapter of Proverbs. And that has me, again, just tickled tickled pink uh, because I know the question I'm going to be getting or one of the questions I'm getting this week is, you know, aren't Proverbs just fortune cookies? And I, golly, uh, the, that, that mindset, that mindset is so damaging. So damaging. And I've heard that before from our Lutheran uh, circle. So I'm gonna hold on. I need, I need a drink. Like, this is it. Like the Lutherans really do treat the Old Testament like it's not part of the Bible. <laughs> it's just, it's in our culture. Step back, guys. It's not our theology. None of us say that's right. It's just what we're actually doing, right? Anyway, and, and so you talk about Proverbs, people like, oh, why, why that? Like, you don't even know the Proverbs. Like, one of the questions I don't have it in front of me right now. Uh, Proverbs 21, uh, or, oh, never mind. I, I, I can't get it out of my head. One of the Proverbs I looked at immediately after that question was asked to me, aren't these just like pro- fortune cookies, was the answer to the, to the thing, but I, now I've lost it, so I'm not going to be able to like, quote it. 
But what I want to do, the reason I brought this up, is uh, to talk about this. I don't think Proverbs are the gateway drug to the Bible. I really do. I think that if you can get someone who's not a Christian reading Proverbs and coming back to talk to you about it, like, you're in, man. It's only a matter of time. (laughs) Now, granted, the Holy Spirit blows where he will. So please, don't hear me saying this is the magic bean, right? But let me say, if there's anything God gave us to talk to pagans with, oh man, Proverbs is good. Yeah, Ecclesiastes, throw it in there while you're at it. I mean, and so it's got me thinking about like, how can you create a reader's Bible where like the whole focus brings you not starting like Genesis through, cause that's kind of tough guys. It's hard to read like that. And so it's, how do you start with Proverbs and have it be the thing that pulls you in, but as a meditational piece. So it's not in the front. And anyway, anyway, where, why did I share all that? My idea of a reader's Bible that would do these kinds of things just to get you to read the Proverbs if you haven't been doing it. And again, what will the disciple need? A, a, a pen, pencil, if you prefer a piece of paper, Right. And then an English Bible. And then if you start with Psalms and Proverbs and then just, wrote, I, I, I just did it this morning. I didn't write it down though, but I, I looked at a proverb. I think it was, am I in 21 or 22 this week? I can't remember. It's 22. I think 22, one, maybe 22, two. I look at it and like out of my mouth comes, I don't know what that means. And then in my head, my head said, so read the next one. And that's what you're supposed to do. <laughs> it makes you wise. If you think I say anything smart ever, like like then take this as the thing that did it <laughs> uh, and apply it in your life. You will benefit from having a paper and a pen as you do it. That's what being a disciple is all about, receiving that discipline and rebuke of the Lord. I have come to value contemplation far more than information. Oh my goodness. We have to like stop and think about that. Like I have come to value contemplation far more than information. We live in a contemplatively impoverished cult Sure, sure. <laughs> you hear it? I can't do it. You can, you can see it much better. I don't know if it'll show up backwards on that. No, that's straight. Culture. 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 Do you see how the word culture and cult are kind of the same root? Yeah. So a cult's just a really small culture. <laughs> and to assume that your culture is good, well, that's cultish of you. Uh, you know, lack of contemplation uh, is uh, contemptation. Well, that's interesting. That's, that, that's like that's like mid-20th century Lutheran preaching ring right there. That... It's not lack of contemplation. It is contemplation. I mean, what a, that's silly. But, but the other thought's really, really good, uh, I think. I've come to value contemplation far more than information. You need to solve for insight. I already mentioned that one earlier. How would Jesus talk to you? Oh, more gently. Yeah. Write that one down. How would Jesus talk to you? More gently. Oh, that helps. That helps me a lot. Hmm. That would help too. Let's play that maybe for later though. Oh, this one too. This came out this morning. Can a man be ignorant of the evil he has caused? Can you be like, no, no, really like totally ignorant of how drastic the evil was that you caused. And Jesus answers an emphatic yes, uh, because he says, father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So pretty much. Yes. uh, Everyone is not anywhere close to aware of all the evil they are generally causing around them. Right. Um, yeah, he's not just referring to the exceptions. Uh, because what's sin? I love this one. Here's a definition for sin. This is not direct out of the Bible, but I think it's a pretty good summary. Uh, sin is the inherent belief that you are the exception. Sin is the inherent belief that you are the exception. The more exceptional you are, by the way, that would mean the more sinfully potentially, more sinful your potential becomes. There it is. Uh, the more exceptional you are, the more sinful your potential becomes because sin is the inherent belief that you are exceptional. And so, like, the rules don't apply to you and stuff like that, right? Right, 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 right? Ah, oh, and without question, baptisms and inheritance. Here's one. I mean, this is really one. Oh, that's good, too. Uh, 
baptism as inheritance. This is one for all of us who want to debate baptism. Let's debate what baptism does. Don't baptize babies. It regenerates. Okay. Yell at each other and have Bible verses. We're done. Okay. Slow down. Slow down. Slow down. Like, I get it. I've been on both well, not been on both, both sides. I have been on one side of that argument. I've made the biblical argument from our side over and over again. But but what I wonder is sometimes if we don't if we didn't have a way to like just back up and look at the argument again and realize, oh, we haven't talked about this part of it yet, then maybe would help us see the bridge that would pull the one who's wrong to the side of the one who's right. It is possible that we've all forgotten the truth on some matter and we all need to repent. I think we should be aware of that. I think to to not have that spirit is proud, proud, prideful. I mean, clearly, once you said, this is my confession, I'm going to stand before judgment day on this, you should do that, right? Um, Luther, like if we're going to, Luther made a vow and he pulled back, right? Like there, there's, a, there's a reason he did that. And there's a reason that we're encouraged not to make vows in a way which would bind our conscience on more than say our baptism. So let's, let's get to baptism. Okay. So can we, if you're a Baptist, you know, go ahead and write in the comments. I may not be able to get to this this week. Send me a, send me a uh, thing at refuse.com slash contact. Don't make it super long, please. Uh, but uh, have you ever thought of what does it do to you if you think of baptism in the language of inheritance? If, if you see that the Bible, Old Testament and New, is always about the inheritance of the faith. This is why you would, as a Baptist, usually... Um, uh, dedicate your babies, right? Is because you realize that you want to pass the faith down, even though you don't believe it can happen until, say, the age of accountability. You realize that it's like you're 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 being given by God this task of of giving the inheritance down, and you even make them wait until they can think to receive the inheritance with the baptism. But you still tie baptism to that moment. You notice that, right? I mean, isn't that interesting? So, um, if baptism is a matter of inheritance from Jesus, right? I think if we can talk this way and think this way, this is really good for you and your heart. It's going to make you realize, oh, baptism's not mine. Baptism's from Jesus, okay? And it is the inheritance of being publicly from Jesus. I can believe, at least publicly, my church thinks I'm a Christian. <laughs> Great! That's like more than me because I struggle with it personally, yeah? <laughs> so having that that corporate reality, well, I... I I would see that as something that would be very powerful, even for a Baptist, and then might cause them to realize they've undervalued baptism. That'd be my argument, right? Right there. How's that feel? Uh, without question, baptism is a matter of inheritance. I think that was good. I think that was pretty clever what I just did. I, I'm so proud of myself, though. It really doesn't really help, right? <laughs> so how bad does it need to be? Oh, I just love that. I love baptism. I really do. I, I mean, that came for me for out of me this morning because... Um, if I didn't know I was baptized, I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know. I would have given up by now. Many times. Since being a pastor. I mean, golly, it's way too hard. It's way too hard. Try to help y'all. Y'all, y'all good, not good people. <laughs> and we're all evil, right? And we don't realize the evil that we're doing around us. And we're always spinning it to our own hearts and our own heads. And it's wearisome. You know, for, for, for a pastor, any pastor, your pastor, wherever he is, preacher, shepherd, call him those things instead. Uh, he is under this idea that somehow he can help. <laughs> that's the great lunacy of the guy who goes like, I'll preach. He's like, he's like, he's like, I'm going to go help. And that's not always how it turns out, right? The Lord's going to do what he does. <laughs> but what happens with a lot of pastors then uh, is that they, they live a life of, of uh, private doubt. They have to, it's part of the, it's kind of like the cross too, on purpose. Like it is what the old men were doing when they went out to the desert caves, 
was to doubt. That's why they did it. The Desert Fathers, they went out in the caves to face doubt. And they thought this was better right, than living among the, uh, the heathen and their wickedness in the, in the land around them. Now, I'm, not, I'm not a Desert Father. I actually think that celibacy, while a great gift, is not the preferred state of life for humans. I think that the entire medieval monastic issue could have maybe been much better if they hadn't started with celibacy as their key thing, and maybe that would not be then so important to the Roman Catholic Church's position as the Antichrist dividing all of Christianity, East and West, um, <laughs> tied to, again, celibacy, the very thing they're arguing about right now for their priests. Oh, goodness. And so I asked this question, not about that. This is all tangent, okay? But right to the car that started it, how bad doesn't does it need to get before Christians put back the beliefs that were torn down? And I'm asking that question for myself about things like, I don't know, kneelers, <laughs> you know, kneelers in the pew, uh, things like that men and women are different and we should treat boys and girls different as they grow up. Uh, you know, but, but how about, you know, marrying pastors, which definitely even the Roman Catholic Church allowed before a certain time in history and they know that. And then it came in and now they say you have to do it. And the reason you have to do it is because they say so and they say that too. What? When are Christians that are Catholics? Romans 8 Catholics. You're a Roman Catholic and you're a Christian because you believe the book of Romans, not because you're under the Pope. When are you going to start questioning your Pope when he doesn't believe the book of Romans? That's what I want to know. That's the Reformation question. Okay, and, and I think it's really important. I do. I think it's so important that Lutherans should be asking that question to everybody all the time. That should be the goal of being a Lutheran is to get the Roman Catholics to reform their church <laughs> so we can go back because we confess. We confess it's the one true church the visible one, we confess we are too. It's complicated. We get really complicated in our confessions. But that said, if it's the one true church, then shouldn't we, shouldn't we want to reform it? Shouldn't we want it to be put back the way that it was as the proclaimer of light and life in this time and space, the pillar and foundation of the truth? Shouldn't it, shouldn't it be that in all things as opposed to in some things? Because right now, by the way, in the pro-life uh, movement, it, it is the, the, the one thing. Uh, so, <sighs> so many, so many thoughts. Here's the last one. This one's tough. Then we'll go get your guys' questions. How much time did I use? Yeah, we're right half an hour. So, as I wrestle with, like, growing up at age 42, at least I grew up at the meaning of the universe. Thank you very much. Coffee. Growing up at age 42, I don't think I'm alone. I think that it's more about, like, a generation thing right now. Where anyone within a certain range, 10, 15, maybe even 25 years, who missed certain culturally necessary attributes of growing up due to the television's infection of American society, no one realizing what was happening because it was a brand new thing and everyone's like, it'll be fine. Right? We just ran through it. As I'm wrestling with what that means then, so how do I now stop being the entertained boy and realize I'm in the world Jesus walked on, life man, where worldliness is actually quite, quite bad. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I've come to reckon with then is that what this zeitgeist, this, this, and Sitzenleben is both of those things, what this wind of our time and this place in which we are, what it has done is it has largely removed the relationship between fathers and sons. And then every other relationship in life is fractured as a result of this. Every other relationship in life. Some of that division between fathers and sons is what we've talked about, say, in Mad Monday, is the matrilineal culture in which uh, the, the women have largely taken over child-rearing entirely. Uh, and that's due to the man being out of the home uh, more and more. But then once that gets... Uh, 
once that happens, when the TV then becomes the father, because the mother is still the mother, so now the TV becomes the surrogate father, there's a lost connection point physically. You're, you're like made into a Gnostic. You're forced to be someone who doesn't have a body because you're learning from people whose bodies aren't near you. Um, and, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. So, one of the things then I've realized out of this idea, right? Don't ask me to defend this yet and being vulnerable. <laughs> I'm not trying to make like, like philosophical arguments per se. I'm like working on my own soul. Um, but what, I, what I've come to realize that I think might help you is then because our fathers have like been corporately taken away from us, that means individually they were taken away from us. That means that, uh, well, it means that the, one of the things your father's supposed to do probably didn't happen. And I'm trying to say this without like condemning each father, right? Like, like again, let Jesus be the judge. We are where we are. Time to repent, all of us. Um, I believe that every human being is born knowing there's something wrong with you. Maybe you're not that. I'm pretty sure everyone else is. A father exists to convince you you're wrong that there's nothing wrong with you. Now, pagan fathers do this in their own way, but that's still what the, the order is for now in the fallen creation. So that the father is supposed to be the image of God like directly by convincing his son that his son is good <laughs> and going to be good. And I would contest that any of us who grew up with TVs as our fathers never got convinced we were good. And that means for those of you whose inheritance is baptism and the reason you should be convinced that you're good. Yeah. Um, that means that was, uh, well, just never told to you. So even though like there's never been anything especially wrong with me besides my sin, but like especially wrong with me, like uniquely wrong with me, right? Uh, I, I don't think. Uh, except that my father, th this, has never counseled me that there's a lot of things especially right with me. But he did get me baptized. Yeah. So then again, my father the true one, he was watching all along. And please don't hear this as a condemnation of my own father, who I hope to go see on his birthday very, very soon, uh, and, and continue to foster a healthy and Christian relationship with him. But as we as a corporate body reckon with this, like we all got to repent. So I'm sorry, right? It's, it's on all of us here. And uh, fathers, you have a task is to convince your children that they're worth something because TV is going to convince them they're not. <laughs> and uh, I'm just going to put my hand up as you know, test case A, here we are, <laughs> you know, and, and I thank Jesus, thank Jesus for his resurrection. Thank Jesus for the fact that uh, families are redeemed by his blood to live in this time, to be able to repent before each other, to give forgiveness to each other. Thank goodness that the forerunner, John the Baptist, who came, said he was coming Right, to turn the hearts of the fathers to their sons and the hearts of the sons to their fathers. That means something. That means Christians, wherever you are. We are right now especially able to wake up, repent, and look back at our family as the reason we're here today. Today, right now. This is what exists. It could all be gone tomorrow. Spend time loving your children today. Give them a hug. Sit beside them on a couch. Yeah, uh, And talk to them about why you think they are valuable. Don't give them some nonsense, you know, Sunday school sticker, everyone's special garbage. Give them the bloodline. You don't have to talk about your past. You are the bloodline. You're standing there in front of them. Give them the model. Give them the mimic and identity to be. And then when you do it, remember, how would Jesus talk to you? 
more gently. More gently. You all rock. I'm so glad you're here. We'll be back in just a moment with your questions. This is Saturday Morning Chill, Mad Christianity. He is risen. You are paid for. He won't be long now. And, oh, I went out of order, but being immortal, breathe. Yeah, breathe. All right. We got a super chat coming in from Jedi Knight, Anakin Cringewalker, on the conversation we were just having. I would like to be able to double check that. There we go. Um, uh, He says this. A few months back, Sargon said, your father gives you your story. When he was reflecting how he's raising his son, kept me with, kept with me since great truth. Sargon of Akkad, not the actual one who is pretty cool, but the actual one, uh, uh, Avatar style, who is, I guess, pretty cool, a, a big gamer, uh, defending masculinity as something that gaming can still protect uh, out there in the philosophic world, found himself pulled into politics, I guess, a bit more. Um, and so I, I, he teaches, right? He like leads people. I don't know much other than this, but absolutely uh, a thought leader, right? And your father gives you your story, right? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of what I was saying. And it's not like, hey, son, here, I'm going to read you a story. Like, the father is the story. What is he? Who are you? Tell your son who you are. And he'll figure out if he's going to do what you do, you know? And we're all afraid, like, oh, we can't let him do what we do. We have to make sure he makes his own choice. Like, that's nonsense. Just be who you are with your son. Talk to him. Now, I say that to myself. <laughs> I'm still learning these things too. All right. So questions from you. Let's start out of order today. Binomial says this. I have a question about Hebrews 10.26. What is the verse describing? Is it a warning against antinomianism or something? The verse is confusing to me. And in my translation on my first read, it would make it seem like I don't know of any Christians, which normally assign that there is something that I miss. Okay. Yeah. So the verse makes you seem like nobody would actually be able to do this, right? Yeah. Which means there's, there's a little bit of a problem. Now, I thought I had this pulled up already, but I don't. So binomial, we are going to hold on to your question for one moment and come back. Cause I think I'm going to find more to help me with that in just a moment. But the question of interpreting 1026 Hebrews, will get there shortly. Cafe Sola says this, uh, why does it seem that reading the Bible creates less of a dopamine response than the blue box does? I feel like we maybe did address this a little bit uh, from the comments last time, but it's, it's worth hovering around again. So when we remember that all blue screen action, colored light that is uh, going into your head at changing paces, that it forms a dopamine chemical rush that is addictive and that is being manipulated clearly by social media apps. Um, I would contend that the movies have maybe been doing this for a very long time. And television certainly is a mind programming machine, uh, if you let it be. And it's, it's addictive in that it pulls you for that need for dopamine. So even when you're away from the TV, you're, you're living as if you need or you were on that, that TV dopamine feed, right? Um, it's a feed, uh, so when you go to read the Bible, yeah, it's going to seem less of a dopamine response uh, because you're not, you're not getting the rush. There's no rush there. You're reading the Bible. It's just history about what really happened on earth, and there's no real need to go into fight or flight. Not right now, right? And that's what the, the TV screen stuff does. It puts you in a low-level fight or flight, and you've just learned to deal with it. You've learned to cope. And uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know. Test me on that one, right? Uh, go, go find the sign. I'm pretty sure it's right. I'm pretty sure it's right. And so what happens is the Bible just, it can't compete with that drug that way, that, that mind-altering chemical experience that watching a movie does. The Bible can't compete for dopamine 
because it just doesn't do that, right? The, the word works instead through enlivening the spirit uh, contemplatively, which is a, not a fight or flight thing. You cannot think while in fight or flight. In fact, did you know when you go into fight or flight, you get dumber? Do you know that when you have an adrenaline rush in order to save your life, you also become stupid? It, it's d- demonstrable. <laughs> uh, I, th- I believe I picked that one up from uh, Crucial Conversations, which I'm not done with yet, but it's pretty pretty useful resource. So go, go find that one. And, and then remember, next time you're like, you feel that flush of heat, you're like, oh, I just got dumb. I should not talk now because I'm going to be dumber. Like, and that doesn't mean like, I don't know what I know in my head. It means that my mouth doesn't think out loud fast. Well, <laughs> I talk poorly when I'm dumb, when I'm angry, right? That's anybody, anybody. And in this angry fight or flight, you know, um, uh, a raised adrenaline experience. Uh, so fear is the same thing. You just, you just lose your ability to manage everything because the body's most concerned with preserving itself in like a, a survival instinct, which I would call the carnal flesh. It's, it's quite evil. The Bible talks about those kind of stuff. But you literally then physically are going to defend yourself against everything. And you're going to see all comers as, as enemies. And this happens in homes. And that's what's sad, right? Uh, when family, and this, is, this happens outside TV culture, the history of trauma and abuse in, in families uh, is huge. America, not America, in, in the world, uh, you can only imagine what evil men do when they are only evil and when there is no light shining in their darkness, no no brighter way, no spirit of truth to enliven them. Um, uh, <laughs> I distracted myself with my doxology there a little bit. Uh, so, the, uh, so the Bible, though, then it, its competition is not on the dopamine absorption scale. The Bible's competition is on the truth scale scale. So like I can go watch a movie because I feel like I should and want to. And afterwards, I may or may not feel good about it. I probably would feel okay about it, but I will not necessarily feel more energized or better. In fact, I'll be more tired than I was when I started. Even if it's like noon, I'll feel like it's nighttime kind of thing. Right. Um, isn't that interesting? And cause you're getting serotonin now that the dopamine is going away, right? That makes you tired. <laughs> uh, so the Bible uh, is instead of that, right, instead of trying to get you to uh, uh, go into low-level panic so you may increase your dopamine load, uh, the Bible is going to play a different game altogether, which is that it's going to tell you about where you really are and getting back to the father thing about who you really are. And uh, that's that's not going to make a dopamine rush. <laughs> uh, however, uh, over time, um, I'm continuing to believe it will uh, enable one to detach from a do- dopamine rush, uh, to, to gradually not need that dopamine rush. Um, although there's lots of ways we get it these days. I mean, you know, why, why do I drink coffee? Right? I'm wanting the upper. Right? And so and it's not like dopamine and serotonin are the only things going on in your head. All I know is what I know, right? All I know is what I've seen and what I've read, which by all means is limited in scope. Like I am not, I'm not pouring over Wikipedia anymore. I'm really, instead I'm going the other way, by the way. Um, I have narrowed myself down. It'll grow, I'm sure. But my library that exists and then I have my library that I'm going to read over and over again. And uh, that's where my study is going to be is increasingly back to what I already know I need to read more of as opposed to uh, going off and trying to get as much more information, right? Contemplation is more valuable to me than information. And so the Bible, the Bible requires contemplation, uh, whereas the, the TV is quite content with information. It wants to form your insides and not let you contemplate it at all. So um, that's why, you know, the devil has good tools and they feel like Pinocchio's Pleasure Island. They <laughs> wake up and see the long noses growing all around you. 
Yes. All right. Uh, Adam says this. In your sermon last week about Joseph, guardian of Jesus, you said something very wise. Well, well, thank you. (laughs) You know, every time I quote the Bible, that happens. It's kind of amazing. You can do it too at home. It doesn't, a fool, almost, almost. You know what? There is a proverb that says, uh, a a proverb in the mouth of a fool is like something. Like, I don't know if if it's the gold ring in in the pig snout, but it's like that one, right? So it's almost entirely true that you can just quote the proverbs and just be wise. Not quite, not quite. Um, uh, to thine own self, be true, be true, said the fool. And everyone quotes him. Adam says this, uh, again, uh, he says I was wise. That's great. I plan, <laughs> you plan to repeat the thing I said that was wise, but you want to give credit where credit is due. That's great. Uh, you don't have to quote me ever. Never. Don't quote me. Just say stuff. Take it. It's from the Bible. It's from Jesus. It's words. It's truth. It works much better without copyright. The more you copyright it, like the, the, the less, something else is going to go wrong. <laughs> uh, so you can try to lock it down and control it, or you can let Jesus be king, right? And so take it. Whatever I say, I don't need credit for it. Look, if you want to give someone one of my books, Without Flesh is is probably the most important thing I've ever done, uh, I, I think, for American Christianity at least. Um, if you can find that book, like you don't have to be a Lutheran to read that book. Lutherans get mad at me because I wrote it for people who aren't Lutherans to read it to convince you that you don't have to be a Lutheran, but you can just re- reform your church. <laughs> Uh, blah, 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 blah. So, um, you know, share that kind of stuff. Share, talk them into it. Uh, to point them to Mad Mondays. Uh, show them that they can get talk them into it for free at Mad Mondays. You know, do all that kind of thing. Um, and but don't worry about quoting me. I really, I really don't, don't care. My name, my name is fine. I've learned to love my name just fine. Uh, but I don't need my name to endure particularly. What I want is for my name to be along with that great cloud that witnesses to the enduring word. That's, that's what I want. That's, that's really what I want. Um, so anyway, yes, take it, take it, use it, repeat it, because that's what the word of God's supposed to be done. That's, that's what it does. It's what it does. And we try to stop it. Like it, it like makes your donkey talk to you and stuff, you know, like, don't do that. And the donkey was not gentle and the angel of the Lord was not gentle, but Jesus, he's gentle. He's gentle. Learn to be gentle. This is <laughs> my own personal quest today. Um, uh, I am paraphrasing to the best of my recollection. The good work of a father is noticed by the neighbors of his son when he is in his 40s. Yeah, 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 yeah. Wow, that is very powerful. Yeah, when I said it, it was one of those moments where like, how do I know this? <laughs> where did this come from? It must be from the Bible or I'm making it up, but I don't, I don't think I'm that great, right? So um, it's, it's part of my own struggle to find this though, right? And so when you know, I've talked already today about where there were places where fatherhood in the last generation kind of failed all of us because Hydra took over our brains with TV. And okay, so G.I. Joe, let's rise up, right? Hey, here we go, guys. Um, I'm, I'm not kidding either when I say that, like full on. We're prepped for it if we'll just see what they did. Anyway, uh, and I don't mean like actually fighting. I mean talking them out of everything because we can. Anyway, uh, to see that, well, where am I now, right? Where am I? I ha- I'm married like almost 20 years. I got five kids. Oldest is 16. She's holding down a job. She likes it. Uh, she likes her education. Uh, the other kids are, <laughs> they're turning into marvelous little survivalists, which is great. Like they want to know their world and use their hands. It's just, it's just beautiful. Um, so, uh, well, that's me in my forties, right? So there is, there is my father you know, at work. And, and then, so I did not yesterday uh, go over to two neighbors houses with food, but my wife did. I didn't even ask her to because I'm just not that good, <laughs> you know, but she just, she just wanted to. And so again, uh, you know, attribute that to her father and mother. There's something there and uh, there's a long story there as well, but you can definitely attribute her, her, her seeing of the need. Um, and I remember that uh, very much from her father. Uh, uh, so long story, long story. Um, 
And the, uh, the good work of a father, though, then, so you see it. Uh, you see it in what comes out of people when they're adults. And this is important for fathers and mothers, then, to see uh, right now is that most of what you're trying to do is far away. And the thing that right now is the temptation that will stop you from doing it is making them happy. It's very important to see that. That if, if you think you're going to make them happy, if that's your barometer of I'm being a good parent today, you're going to be a very poor parent. Straight up. You're going you're gonna to be, actually, you're not a parent. You're the child. You're the child needing to be made happy by your child. And to make yourself happy, the child has to be happy. That's a really hard cross to bear. Matrilineal culture is, again, a difficult thing to reckon with. Um, the Drama of the Gifted Child. It'd be a book I'd point you to for that one. And another one I found recently called Complex Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder from Surviving from Surviving to Thriving. I'm not, I'm not sure about this one yet, although I also am because I've read enough of it to know it's um, it's going to help on some levels if you really deal do deal with any type of PTSD. But, uh, um, which I'll, I'll confess I, I do, uh, <laughs> uh, complex PTSD, which is uh, child onset, as opposed to, uh, kind of what you think of normally PTSD being uh, military guys carry a lot of this is like adult onset. Um, they're, they're different. Uh, the actual PTSD is, I think maybe more detrimental, uh, uh, more difficult to deal with, but a complex PTSD from what I've read about it so far is like, wow. Okay. That makes sense. makes a lot sense. A lot of things. Um, so here I am. You got me talking about my father, my problems after I said something wise last week. Look at this. What a waste of my voice. Oh goodness. Um, so, uh, yeah. So, uh, the good work of a father. I mean, my father instituted in me a love of, of learning, a love of knowledge, a love of grace, uh, a love of, um, uh, well, enduring and, and going on. Uh, of not backing down. My grandfather, who I talked about last week, I actually got, a, I think, a comment about him too coming up, um, which I mentioned, like I was mad about, I'm sad about, but also he, he was an endurer. He was an endurer. And he left a household that was way worse than the one he uh, had his children in. And, you know, my household is a far, far thing removed from my great grandfather's household, which I, I know enough about to know I don't want to grow up in that one. Oh, wow. So, so like everywhere that you see trauma in your current generation, you got to realize that uh, whatever the sin is, whatever we've all been turned in on, this happens every generation. And if you have Christian parents who in any way, shape or form were there as Christian parents, then you're better off than if they weren't Christian parents. And thank Jesus for all of it. <laughs> you know, thank Jesus for for all of it. And then, uh, yeah, so like, like you hold down a job and you can read and you care about like truth. Well, this is all something to say thank you to your parents for, even if your parents uh, were people who, uh, well, well, let me just say we're worse than mine, right? Mine weren't bad. I don't think they're not bad people. Um, they were not violent people, but with that television thing mixed in and then, you know, generational reality, it's always been part of all of us. I just think that a, a lot of our traumatic situations as peoples got more traumatic in the last generation. And, and by that, we're like, we're like stunted, right? Or stunted. Anyway, if that's not you, that's fine. But I think a lot of you are listening to me because that's you. So, hey, welcome to the club. Us the Chill. Have you found the Mad Christian Discord? Look for us the chill in Discord. I know Discord's kind of weird because it doesn't make money on you by selling you stuff like the other what social medias that you use do. Instead, I pay for it and you get to just be there and talk about things like you would in the Facebook chat group only without the trolls. So, hey, feel free to join unless you're a troll. If you're a troll, we will kick you out. It is Fight Club. It's geared toward men who are able to be able to say something online, realize, you know, I overstepped. I'm sorry. Say that. Or also realize it's online. The guy just didn't realize how rude he sounded. I'm not even going to bring it up. I'm going to overlook it because the Proverbs say, 
Any, any fool can start an argument, but it is uh, the glory of a man to overlook an offense, right? So, uh, Mad Christian Discord, it is a fight club for conversations about Christianity, survival, life, philosophy, humor, music, liturgy. There's all sorts of stuff going on there. Um, be, be nice. Be gentle. How would, how would Jesus talk to you? How would, you, how would Jesus write on the Mad Christian Discord? Well, more gently. How do you write more gently? That's the problem. Oh my goodness. Uh, like you need to edit your stuff, people. Whole world, whole world. Trolls, edit, edit it. We'll listen then. Okay. Yeah. Adam, uh, did I get it? Did I get it? Thank you for taking the wisdom where it was found and pressing it forward. Again, all we're doing is repeating. There's what I was looking for. All we're doing is repeating um, what's always been said by Christianity. It's nothing new. Nothing new. Just our ignorance. I will be absolutely... Ah, that's not new either. I'll be right back. All right, so we had that question earlier from Binomial about... Is it going to go on? Ah, about uh, Hebrews 10.26, uh, which is causing the person to uh, doubt their faith, right? Yeah. So let's just read Hebrews 10.19-31. That won't take a while. <laughs> Hebrews is such a beautiful book. I will try to go quickly here. Uh, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holy, the holiest. Yeah, that's like the holy of holy places. So the full fulfillment of the old covenant entirely. The high priesthood now reduced to one man, Jesus Christ. He has fulfilled it and brought us with him into God's presence by the blood of Jesus, by a new living way. That's verse 20 now, excuse me, by which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And have a high priest over the house of God. So so Christ in his own flesh that has bled, died, and risen again has pierced the veil of God's own presence. And with it then our sin, so that man is back in God's own presence without sin, right? Um, and so uh, that is the new and living way. He himself is that new and living way of not being burned in hell, basically. Not being evil anymore, which hell is just evil. That's all it is, really. Um, and where it's going to be. I shouldn't say it that way. The way you think of it, though, that is all, that, <laughs> all it is. When God actually has hell as the gospel. And then so the, you can't quite just take what I said and throw it against God unless you take the whole other argument. Anyway, the new and living way out of hell is Jesus. Hello. Um, and uh, he is consecrated for us as himself, his flesh, entering, you know, as our high priest. So then because of this, because you know this, hello gospel, right? This is the essence of the gospel is that you're now inheriting who Jesus is in God's sight. Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled. That's water dropping language. That's baptismal language. Having our hearts sprinkled. How would baptism baptize your heart? I know it's kind of, oh, and anyway, uh, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. Oh, here's how. And our bodies washed with pure water. Oh, it is about that. Like, it's totally about baptism. It just has to be about baptism because where else do we wash bodies with water in church? And it's actually water baptism. It's talking about, look, and, it, and your hearts can be sprinkled from evil conscience. That's interesting. It doesn't even have the word baptism. It's almost like, anyway, we'll just, we'll just leave that one for there, right? Uh, let us hold fast. I mean, this is grace, right? Because you know you have grace, and I would contend baptism is when God is just promising you in the community that you have grace and you should trust God <laughs> on that matter. The words that have been there for, you know, since Jesus spoke them. Uh, since you have that, let us hold fast, verse 23, the confession of our hope without wavering. And since you know you can't die, you know that your death will only be like a ah, immortalizing moment of like, wake up, uh, well, hold fast to what you believe. Don't let what you know to be true be taken away from you by some you know, skeptic with a story from far away and a flashy sign. 
goodness gracious. Hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Like God's the one doing this. You believe this because the Holy Spirit's in you. The Holy Spirit's in you. God is in you to make you believe this. This is not so you'll look at yourself and make, oh, I have the Holy Spirit. I'm going to be so strong. No, so you'll be like, oh, the only reason I believe the Bible at all is because the Holy Spirit is doing that. I have the Holy Spirit. I should read the Bible more. Oh my goodness. And yeah, that's good. Like that's all good. That's what should happen. All right. So verse 24, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Hey, by the way, context. What's the context of your verse now? What's the context of your verse? Can you do it yourself? Or do you need me to tie the pieces together? The context of your verse is that you're going to try to talk about stirring up love and good order. Is this about falling away yet? And maybe he's going to say it, but, but like, what's it about? What's it about? Okay. So stirring up love and good order. This is the context. What, and how has he started? By affirming to you that the high priest intercedes for you. The high priest intercedes for you. So not forsaking <laughs> the assembling of ourselves together. That's the word church. <laughs> Not forsaking church, uh, but exhorting one another. That's what church is for. You come together to be exhorted, to be encouraged, to be built up. Uh, law and gospel should do this. Law, gospel, sermon, sandwiches. Don't do this. That's a different topic. Camera, blah, blah, blah. Brief history of power. Dr. Coons, we're probably not going to talk about that there. Actually, uh, we're fitly spoken with him. If you send them a question for him to talk about camera and what's wrong with homiletics in the LCMS, I'm pretty sure he would do it. Um, so uh, maybe not. Maybe we just got him in trouble. We'll see. Uh, <laughs> let us consider going to church in order to be encouraged and all the more as you see the day approaching. That is, as you realize you live in Alice in Wonderland and that what Jesus dealt with and what Luther dealt with isn't anywhere near the Hydra crazy Skynet Matrix n- zombie nonsense that we're looking at now. Like, on, take a step out of it. This stuff's not as mad. Look at this thing. This is magic. It's magic, I say. So, so all the more as you see the day approaching, go to church to be encouraged and start up in love because here's your verse. If willfully we sin after we have received knowledge of the truth, there's no longer made a sacrifice for sin. So, so what sin could possibly be the one he's referring to here? Like, what does he have in mind? Maybe is he talking about pornography at the moment? Is, is that his point? I mean, is, is porn a wrong? Bad? Yes. Worse than you think. But is that what he's talking about right now? No, he's talking about not going to church. He's talking about not knowing you're baptized. That's what he's talking about. If you, if you willfully reject that, like, I don't need a church to be a Christian. I don't need Jesus to be a Christian. I don't need the people of God who are Christians to be a Christian. I can be a Christian, just me and Mother Earth. Sorry, dude. You just don't know what you're talking about, right? So here is what the verse is about. Willfully letting go of the knowledge that you need to be built up by Jesus' words. And frankly, if you're far away from church and you can't get to one, it can happen. Open a Bible, take out a pen, use a paper, look at it. But it will tell you that you should be gathering with other people for this purpose and to receive the sacrament. So eventually your conscience should compel you to want and pray for that, if nothing else. Yes. So I'm not saying, especially I don't need church to be a Christian. The definition of the word, kirke, it's not such a, it's such a, we got so messed up by that going through German into English and it just messes with all of what the Bible says about who we are. That word, kirke, German, it's, it's Greek, ecclesia, right? You've heard ecclesiology, the study of the church. Ecclesia, that word means to be, to be called out, to be called out or to gather and assemble. Like it says right here and to not be alone, to not be in a silo, to not think it's just you and God and your TV, unless that is, if you catch my drift. <laughs> yeah, because it is for many people. Um, <laughs> there no longer remains a sin, a sacrifice for sin left. Yeah, if you don't go to Jesus, <laughs> what's 
I mean, that's, that's, his point is not like if you do one sin, then you won't be able to be saved again, right? It's if you don't go to Jesus, there is no, all the sacrifices that were done before now are fulfilled in Jesus. He's the blood of the covenant. If you don't go to the Father through his blood, there, there's no sacrifices left. Nothing you can do. Just just a certain fearful expectation of judgment day, fire indignation, which will devour the adversaries, those adversaries of Jesus. I mean, this is not about like whether or not you're going to fall away unless you're falling away by not believing in Jesus, by not going to assemble in his name with at least two or three others to remember that he's risen from the dead and that you have nothing to fear. I know we live in a time where there's a lot of fear. So don't hear me telling you that you're out of church forever just because you haven't been for a while, consider this the voice of the shepherd. <laughs> consider this the call to start building up your courage. And remember that the disciple begins by opening an English Bible, getting a pen and paper, going to the Proverbs and the Psalms. The Sons of Solomon Psalms, by the way, are a great place to start. 123, 125, 127, and so on. You can find out more about that at the Mad Christian Discord. But you go, you open it up, you read it. You write down something. doesn't matter. Anything. And then read what you wrote down later or the next day and then throw it away and keep doing that with the Bible. And then you will again, you'll be going to a church. <laughs> you'll be going to a church. You won't be able to stay away. You know, the Herald Camping, like, like leave the institutional church. Why did he not reform the institutional church? Why did Harold Camping not spend all that time sending Christians into institutional churches, churches to take them back over from the ungodly, ungodly, yeah, the godless, worldly, monetary-driven decision-making policies not men, never men, just policies that are running everything. Yeah. Why not? And I don't think who Harold Camping is. He got, you know, Family Christian Radio was bigger than my church body, I think, ever was. Uh, and never gathered once. One guy just does what I'm doing a little bit. I don't think I'll ever get that big. But he was telling people not to go to church. Like his, his whole thing was you can't go to church because the church is so bad. If you go, what you're going to find is liars and thieves. The problem, I mean, the reason he was like successful is because he's telling the truth. Telling the truth. Why are there wars and fights among you, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod? James, look at James. Read it. It's just the question. Read the next verses. Why are there wars and fights among you? We we have a problem. American Christianity, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, is no special thing. I mean, our confessions are. But aside from that, we're not. We're, we're just like everybody else. And in that, we have just a complete fight going on over worldly things. It's most of what we're doing. Now, Usually we have godly reasons for our fighting over worldly things. We have very godly justifications for our fighting over worldly things, but we continue to fight over worldly things. And I would contend that this is why it all just keeps falling apart. <laughs> it's because the worldly things will. Yeah? Um, but that's, again, that's not what this is talking about. This isn't talking about how like we as a group, wherever you are, need to be involved uh, in your church in order to reform it. It's talking about not leaving, right? Again, that's the point. So Hill Camping said leave. You know, just send me money. We'll do the radio show. I don't know how that worked out after he prophesied the end of the world twice and then he repented once and all oh, this is like years ago. Back when people listened to this kind of stuff, back when you had a chance in the media, it's over. It's over, Christians, unless you're already up at the top and they bought you. Um, we're, we're down smalls now and that's all right. It's all right to be smalls. So that's okay. It's, it's okay to be not the elites of the world and living amongst the common. And the fact that we have the ability as commoners to do TV now, that's great. Commoner TV. Yay, Saturday morning show. So like, that's all good. So then like, like own that and, uh, and then recognize that the elite structures that are there that have come with elite American culture, you can abandon them or you can engage them. And that 
your congregation is one of the ones you should engage. You really should. It's worth having there. It's a rallying point for so many things beyond just the altar that is, in fact, the real thing. But the altar of the king is a rallying point for everything in your life. Christianity does not come along and prescribe to you a tit for tat. Here's how to live your day like a lot of other kind of legalistic religions do. But it does come along and tell you there's a way to live that's different and better. There is. And it starts with being forgiven and knowing you are. And that's why if you're outside of that, there's just nothing else you can do. This is now we're back to the Hebrews point, right? If you're outside of that way, the truth, the life that is the resurrected one human being, Jesus Christ, not a philosophy, not an idea, not a theory, a history, a fact, a man, alive today, ascended, returning. If you don't have that, all you got is a certain fearful expectation of judgment, which you know deep down. That's why you're justifying yourself all the time and trying to make sacrifices to whatever gods you think are going to save you. <laughs> and a fire indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy. How much more the punishment you suppose will be? Well, he who is, who, who ha, will be, ah, I've lost it. How, I can't even start with the first word. I'm looking at it and I said the second word instead. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the son of God underfoot? I see why it's hard to read. Uh, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. So, so if someone decides to stop being a Christian and walks away and like dies in that conviction, that's rough. Like, you got, you got like the worst level of hell coming. Like that's what he's saying, right? But the point is not really to drive at that. It's more to ask, drive it at you. He's trying to encourage you to go to church. So he's saying like, like, don't you think that like it would be trampling God underfoot to ignore what he said, right? Um, don't you think that the blood of the covenant that sanctified you, that if you say, I don't need any more forgiveness ever again, um, that, that you would kind of be profaning that, that sacrifice that he made since he said, do these things in remembrance of me. Remember that one? The one everyone says is just a symbol. Now they don't want to do it anymore. <laughs> oh, it's amazing how the ploy works over centuries. Um, and, uh, in, in insulting the spirit of grace. So, you know, you're rejecting salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. I'll, all ye, I don't need to go to churches, right? And I agree that, again, be wary of the hypocrisy in the church and go in careful. Go in with your, your paper and your pen, your Bible, and find yourself a pastor you can trust. Find yourself a preacher, a shepherd you can trust. It's pretty key, pretty key. And trust him because he says what the Bible says, not because he's a nice guy with a good slick handshake. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, we got programs. Programs? Do we got programs? Get your programs at my church. Anyway, there's another verse. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine. I will repay. That gets into the soldier question a little bit. The Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Yes, it is. So, Bonomial, that's that's really not what it was trying to say to you, I don't think, unless you just hate going to hear about Jesus whenever it is spoken of him. I mean, they, So, even the gathering two or three together, if you're listening to this as a podcast next week, right? Like, this counts as the call. This is the filling up of your heart with Holy Spirit whenever the scriptural truth is proclaimed. This is the beauty of being church, is you do take church with you everywhere you go. You are the church where two or three of you are gathered. You do not need a pastor in that gathering to be Jesus Christ's church in that place. However, then again, you do because the pastoral reality is a bit fractal. It, it, it shoots downwards so that even in a group of women, if you have one woman among those three just talking about Jesus for a while, the office of Jesus' holy ministries at work in the Christian congregation through what we call the mutual consolation and confessions of the brethren, right? And so, like, that, it, like, ah, 
And yeah, more of that, right? If, if, you, if, if I didn't complete my paragraph out loud in real time, <laughs> uh, I want more of that. I want more of the refraction of the recognition that the office exists to speak these words so they will be spoken out and about and more, and that that's church. As opposed to the hydra encrusting like the tentacles of, of TV watching and phone all over the world. Look at it next time you see people walking around with their phones. Think of it as like a tentacle of Chichulu coming out right there. Like right, I got I got Chichulu right here. He's like coming up at me, right? Like if you can think of that a little bit. Uh, <clears throat> and then put yourself back in the place where you want to stand different than that. Where you want to be one who is under the certain resurrection of Jesus Christ and not be sleepwalking. Not be sleepwalking. It doesn't mean you can't use these tools. Yeah, I, I, I'm still using these tools. Hello, we're looking at it right now. Uh, but uh, uh, anyway, cool. We're moving on. John, John says this. What is the solid difference between Anglicanism and Lutheranism? I like that. Do you, is that a reference to the solid declaration? <laughs> to put solid difference in caps? Um, that's, I can give you the Lutheran answer. I can probably give you the Anglican answer. Um, and then I can give you kind of the fact that it's very complex and has a lot more to do with history than with the power of the ideas. By that, I mean the swords of men often move the ideas around. And while we might say that's unjust, Jesus hasn't stopped it. And so, (laughs) so, you know, he has a reason. So what can I say about Anglicanism? as opposed to Lutheranism. Well, Anglicanism is the church of the country of England. It kind of officially lives or dies with the king, queen. I'm not sure what's going on there now. You know, that kind of thing. Lutheranism uh, is a set of ideas, confessions drawn from the scripture, ideas about the history of the scripture that regionally had different impacts in different areas, largely due to the conversion of the leaders of those areas, not necessarily by conversion of the populace. And so those areas became institutionally states that had the Lutheran theory. Let's just put it that way. I don't think Lutheranism at its best is theory. I think it ultimately is Christianity, but I'd rather talk about Christianity then, wouldn't I now? Uh, So, (laughs) uh, so the uh, Lutheranism then is like this state church that existed in Germany. And uh, Anglicanism is the state church that existed in England. And now you end up in America without the state doing this, at least now, sort of, kind of, depending, but that's another complex argument, right? So, brief history of power. How often can I mention it? Um, Over here, though, you know, the Anglican church hasn't had as much success uh, post-revolutionary war, right? Well, I mean, there were reasons and things. Um, uh, Lutheranism had a lot of success basically through German immigration. We just had a lot of people who came in who were Lutherans, but by that point, the German immigration was more what you would call reformed or unionized, and the churches in Germany are increasingly unionizing. That is, all the Protestants are just trying to be Protestants together, and what happens is uh, the the Lutheran tends to get squeezed out, and uh, uh, the Lutheran voice tends to get silenced in that party, Uh, and As, as that unionizing then it happened, what happened was that uh, the versions of Lutheranism that came across the water were not always like Lutheranism. They were basically like Protestant. And then you had v- different ethnic groups connected to that. You had different leaders in those groups 
more or less skilled at gathering people in different ways. Um, and you had many attempts to be faithful. Uh, you know, uh, and if you just want to talk Lutherans, like the Tennessee Synod, anybody? I mean, it's just, it was there and now it's kind of not. And uh, there's still some congregations, but it's not like it's this institution, right? It's not Lutheranism as we talk about it. So, you know, what you're really asking here is, is sort of a bad question. Um, I don't mean this to be, you know, mean to you, but as I talk about rejecting modernism, and by that I mean getting rid of the categories that are not from the Bible that we use to talk about the Bible, and try to talk about the Bible instead of the categories the Bible talks about the Bible in. I just can't see how that could hurt us. Granted, translation's a challenge here, right? And this is why I advocate learning learning to read your Bible, period. Um, but, uh, uh, so these two sort of theories now are trying to put themselves into into practice in, in America, um, as if there still is that state cultural corporate reality to support. And then what we see now is that 150 years after a lot of this happened for say Lutheranism, uh, but really it's all these corporate state sponsored, at least by, uh, the culture says, or the state says one nation under God. Um, we have these institutions that arose and yet that institution that founded all this, this under God institution that we all pledge allegiance to, it's, losing its influence, right? And so all these influ- all these little institutions are losing their influence. Which ones are really Lutheran? Well, that's what all the Lutherans are arguing about. Like, well, we're the real Lutheran ones, and those are the Lutheran ones. They're not right because of this. And, and usually there's something correct that they're correct about. Um, but, you know, is that Lutheranism? Well, I, I don't know. Whereas Anglicanism, I've not engaged a lot of it directly. Um, although a little, I had some Lutheran convert priests, actually, uh, in Philadelphia. Um, one who went back. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, uh, um, I've, I've, uh, dealt with the Mockingbird guys a little bit. If you know who they are, um, uh, they wouldn't know me, I don't think, but I went to one of their conferences and, uh, what is Anglicanism? So let's talk about Anglicanism as an idea now, because of it being the country church of England founded by Henry the eighth. So he could get divorces. Like that's the foundational moment, guys. That's your big stick in the sand. Okay. Um, because of that, there's a certain festering allowance, license, that just kind of is the essence of what Anglicanism is, even though it tends to be incredibly faithful. And and if you look at British Christianity, I mean, it did colonize the world, but so was everybody else. So I'm not going to like say that's Christianity's fault. They were just part of the ride there. Like Christianity usually is part of the ride, but you had a Christian uh, tampering a tempering of the society in, in, in British colonial England. And if you look at the civilization of it, like how people treated each other or were expected to treat each other, it's a lot better than right now where you are. Like you, you go where you are and how do people treat each other? Uh, they don't tip their hat, right? They ain't, they ain't part of it. So, so the English world was wonderfully tempered by Christianity and Anglicanism, Anglicanism, Anglicanism's theological, uh, grappling with reality after Henry was pretty strong. And you had some really great leaders in it. And one of the most important ones is a guy named Thomas Cramer. And Thomas Cramer was a Lutheran. I mean, there was no, he couldn't join the Missouri Synod. There wasn't, he was in England, right? And, and he's, he, but he's getting the Lutheran stuff from Germany. He's like, this is right. And he was a major influence early on uh, in, in the church. But unfortunately, due to Luther's, this is really direct, due to Luther's unwillingness to deal with Henry VIII because of the divorce, said, nope, I won't give it to you. Henry went to 
the reformed, what we call the reformed predecessors, uh, uh, you know, it's not every one of you reformed, but the ones who were the sacramentarians, the ones who would allow for those to say the body and blood of Christ is not the supper. Henry went with them instead because they'd allow him to have a divorce. Right. And so, so as that worked out, that was all about personalities, not theories. Remember, these are the persons who will do it, who happen to have certain theories that then get put into the church. Right. And the institutional church, which is run by the state, which we should by no means confuse entirely with the one church of Jesus Christ. Anglicanism is a big mixed blanket of everything under the sun as a result of this. Like, it doesn't matter. You can be a Catholic and an Anglican. You can be a Pentecostal and Anglican. You can probably be a Wiccan and an Anglican. Like, it doesn't matter. Uh, All that matters is sort of their liturgical structure and tying to the bishop of the Church of England. Not unlike Roman Catholicism is with the seat in Rome and not like unlike the uh, uh, Bart over there in Constantinople, Bartholomew, uh, uh, handles, handles, but, but different. But these are like cultural kind of institutional, like in cult, cult things. Um, Lutheranism has no such center of gravity. Except for the small catechism of Dr. Martin Luther, which is interesting. We have a symbol instead of a seat. Please explain. <laughs> um, from that, all sorts of things happen. But it also, uh, it allows for Anglicans to have lots of Christians in Anglicanism who live with things like the 39 Articles, in which you can kind of get, you, you can force Lutheranism into the 39 Articles the same way you can force it into the Augsburg Confession. And if you don't know what I mean, like just look at what it says on the Augsburg Confession on the Lord's Supper. Like, there's not enough. That's why we have the formula. So, um, so, you know, they stopped with 39 Articles and it unified them. We didn't stop with the small catechism. But the small catechism continues to be a unifying factor in what you see as Lutheranism. And so without even talking about, you know, the, the problem of a name like Lutheranism and how it doesn't really help anything because it doesn't, doesn't refer to anybody now anymore. It refers to lots of different things. Um, so now, okay, with all that said, like, where are you going to find the actual theological dispute? Well, because Anglicanism can allow for things like Anabaptist ultimately to, to be in its midst, um, to, to be there, uh, and they come out of that, really. The, Anab- the Baptist, I should say Anabaptist, that was German. Uh, but the, the real Baptist movement does start in the Church of England. Uh, most of the things that we consider American Protestant movements start in the Church of England in some way. Wesley was an Anglican. Um, and Finney learned from him in New York. Uh, so, but where do the real debates come down? Where are you most likely to find it? It could be on the matter of baptismal regeneration, although maybe not. It could be on the matter of the Lord's Supper being... Uh, the high church, uh, as they would talk about it, uh, uh, sacramental reality. Uh, then again, it could not. They might not disagree with you about that. You can, frankly, I think you could run into someone who is an Anglican who agrees with you on every single thing you would say as Lutheran, except for your talk about church fellowship and ecclesiology. And that, that's, that's where it's all going to come down, is how do you know your church? And most of our other differences are then, um, again, when the Anglican's going to be a Protestant Anglican, this Protestant Anglican is going to disagree with you about everything if you're a Lutheran. Like, like all the stuff a Baptist would disagree about. It's just going to be that, right? And if they're a, if they're a high church c- Catholicizing Anglican, um, they might not disagree with, about, with you about too much. But then again, they might not believe in Jesus at all and be kind of atheistic scholars instead, right? So like, it's, it's just not that easy. And LCMS, if you think you're so clean, look at, look at who's teaching your classes in your colleges and in your Sunday schools, for pity's sakes. I, have I told this story? I mean, I, I, I'll tell one story. It's out of school except it's in Sunday school. And it's about a call that I didn't get. Someone got my class. Uh, first call, Sunday school, East Coast. I think they had three Sunday school teachers. One of them wasn't a member. 
she wasn't a Christian. She was an atheist, teaching Sunday school in the LCMS church every week. Huh. She wanted to. Why, why would you stop her? So LCMS, easy on yourselves. So you're like, we're orthodox. <laughs> easy on yourselves. I get it. Paper practice. But we got to get on this a little bit here. Really. Friends, neighbors, countrymen, let me your ears. Let me your prayers. So before we go poking fingers at Anglicanism for not reforming their king yet, why don't we tell them they should? <laughs> go read about some Cranmer yeah, and go just go discover why divorce wasn't a great idea even though Luther allowed for polygamy. I mean, it was, it was such a crazy time and it was so politically like, like invested. I'm just not willing to say that just because Lutheran confessions happened to get the you know, biblical answer to the problems they were dealing with that the church stopped with us. Uh, and if anything, we're here to help keep it going, right guys? Right? Are we trying to like put the good stuff out there? So what's the difference? I think Anglicanism is then uh, historically going to be a settled thing. It has to be. By definition, it is settled. Uh, Lutheranism historically is a sojourning thing. I think the settledness of Lutheranism in America is part of our problem. We should consider ourselves as uh, expatriates, as those who are outside of the church that we should be inside of, which is the Roman Catholic Church. And we should continue to try to reform it and be really mean, mean about it. What if you took, I thought this thought, I don't know if, if you could get away with this, but like seriously, what if a whole congregation of us, like 70, it can't be a big one. Don't do a big congregation. Do one of these little congregations with like 40 people and a pastor, right? What if we all just start attending the Roman Catholic Church? And just talk after church to everybody. Talk to the priest. No, just, where's here? Listen, where's here to go to church? Just never go to church again at your own church. Just go there again. 15 years later, how's that conversation going? I don't think we could do it. I don't think we'd do it. But it'd be like, it's total like, like CIA level next, next era thinking. <laughs> it'd be really cool. Uh, you could reform an entire Roman Catholic congregation into Christianity without rejecting its voice against the Antichrist in the true church of Rome. I would just say, why don't we, I'm just dreaming because my real problem is we sit down and we think we're comfortable. That's my real problem, right? My real problem. I, I don't think that's really a realistic ploy, that one I just gave you. But man, that's a good book. That's a good book. So, okay, back to solid differences. So it's hard to say because Anglicanism is difficult to pin down outside of it just being the Church of England. They really want everyone to be happy there, and you're welcome. Yes, the witches too. And, and you know, the ecumenical movement is is now really run and connected to this idea. But yet, there are very, very faithful Anglicans. And if you go to look at, like, say, African Anglicanism, it's it's a good Protestant Christianity that Lutherans should reckon with as, as brothers in arms in this and maybe even ones that could be won over because they have a certain piety regarding the scriptures that we don't. We're all skeptics. So like, yeah, does that help? <laughs> I hope that helps. And it's certainly incomplete. I mean, it's not the bullet point answer that uh, I wish I could give you where it's like, well, here are the differences I should recommend to you. I, I just pulled it onto my shelf of books. I plan to reread all, all 10 of them. F.A. Myers, Religious Bodies in America. It is dated, to be sure. But I have never found a treatment of the ideas behind the divisions in Christianity as comprehensive and clean as this. It's an old book. It's a good book. It's a good book. Um, speaking of books I'm rereading, uh, before I go to uh, Eli's question here, I wanted to share... Oh, oh my back. Um, this has been sitting still for too long. So you've heard me talking maybe of some of the other stuff about the desks I've been working on, my workbench and all this. And... Uh, I posted on the Elusive channel on the Mad Christian Discord a picture of my new workbench with wheels on it that it's not done yet. So it looks a little unstable, but it's actually not very unstable at all. And it's going to get more stable. And I said, it only does everything. 
and it, it does. It's so awesome. And so right now, what it is doing is it's a leather working station. Uh, and I've been, uh, it's been a while since I worked with leather. I found leather, I don't know, six months ago, maybe when I was really wrestling with smart noting and, you know, how best to keep track of things that you put on, on cards. And, you know, if you read Sanka Aaron's book on, I'll, Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to take Eli off here for a second. We'll bring him back. If you, uh, uh, take Sanka Aaron's book on, I should have done it this way. Take Sanka Aaron's book, uh, smart notes, and you look at it, it, it tells you that once you start producing this content digitally or, or physically, you're going to have your ideas coming out of you. They're valuable. Some you're going to throw away, but you're going to want to keep some and find them again. And how do you find them? That's the question. And uh, Aaron's answer is is a very modern answer. It is you're going to create the Dewey Decimal System for yourself. You're going to find your own way to have a Dewey Decimal System. And if you need to use Deweys, it probably would be better than what um, uh, Lumens was, although Lumens was slightly ingenious. But I, I uh, And he's the guy that Sunk Aaron's bases the smart notes on. But I just... I'm not ready to buy file cabinets and file cabinets and file cabinets and more file cabinets. I I don't want to live in the basement at Hydra. And so I was wrestling with like, before I go and like write a book on smart notes or anything like that, which who knows, um, but you know, why don't I figure out uh, how to actually live in this information and uh, be comfortable with it rather than trying to like find a way to share people, share with people and profit on it. And uh, why don't I find something that might only work for me? And that just might be the case. It might be what I need. And what I found was leather. <laughs> leather, which we'd already found with uh, Everbook. And I've seen Brian Chapman in here a little bit. Everbook is a way to use leather to keep track of loose paper uh, in a way that is like lost in America. And even the planner doesn't quite get there. So um, you know, Brian's in the comments or go over to his w- website uh, and, and look more into Everbook in particular. But um that Everbook now is a particular leather piece and it's a really high quality piece of leather. Uh, but what I've discovered, I like working with it myself and I've started buying different pieces of leather and uh, it, in order to keep track of my stuff. So here's here's my most recent, um, like, I don't know. I got a bunch of them now. I'm only gonna show you a couple, but this is like, well, it says habituation, right? Habituation. This is the notes that I know I want to see again and again, but I don't really need to like look at them when I'm when I'm trying to figure out what to do next today. Right, like they're in the way if they're with my bullet points and my to-dos. But I want to be able to go to them in any moment and be forced to go to them regularly to remember sort of who I am. I mean, the first thing that's there, it says breathe, breathe, right? Now, what I want to show you, though, is that this is my leather work. I did not actually tan the leather. I bought the leather, but buying it and then a little bit of wood and then look at that python right there. Oh, it's so cool inside. A um, little bit of wood and I've got an Everbook right? Uh, it's probably not nearly as cool as Brian's and it definitely would have, but here's the thing that I really learned. I was initially trying to do Everbooks for note cards that were just the size of one set of note cards. And what I found works way better is again, this, which these pieces here are not holding the book closed, but again, they act as like a, a, a catch on the inside there. Right. And, uh, <laughs> you see all my, my crazy thoughts. Uh, this is like my most serious stuff. Oh goodness. I want to I want to ponder and ponder and ponder. What am I looking at here? I'm like getting excited by it. There you go, idol. An idol is a non-reality that fools have set up in the place of God. An idea, something diabolic. <laughs> All those things. Um, so I, I'm showing you the leather though. It's just it's been so much fun to get to work with my hands and then improve. So this one, uh, it it works really good. I like it, but it wasn't like I wasn't really happy with it. Um, and so I want to keep you know improving. Here's another one. 
this one is has grown over time. So I've been using this this old Lutheran hymnal external shell as an everbook for catching like uh, uh, what would I call it? Um, church work. <laughs> Anything that I want to have at a meeting at church is now like right there, right? And so what I did recently, though, and oh, I got a ladybug in here. Um, my first attempt at a leather book was this one here that's on the out now it's on the outside you kind of see it it had all sorts of problems i didn't do so well but when i glued it on the inside of this this hymnal cover right so now i've got wood i've got leather and i've got the hymnal cover this thing is like solid this is like let's store it for eternity in here and it'll stay safe probably not for eternity but anyway so now here's one more and this why am i doing this it this is an easy one you can do at home okay this is my personal copy of ender's game i love ender's game I can open Ender's Game and I can find a quote and it'll, it'll tell me it'll tell me about reality. It won't be equal no matter what the conditions are. My little game, right? My little game. Fourth leveling the book to see it as a philosophy and pull out the philosophy I like from it and then be able to when I'm a little stressed go remember it's not a game. It's real life and Ender knew how to deal with it. Um, learned how to deal with it I should say. Uh, so, but what did I do? So I, it's just a paperback copy and I bought a, this was a, um, a, a journal. So it was smaller. There was less paper in it, but I took the paper out of the journal, just removed the cover and then used some wood glue and glued it right onto Ender's Game. There you go. It's just like doing crafts in kindergarten. And I got a leather bound copy of one of my favorite fiction books. So find something to do with your hands. You'll be amazed. You'll be amazed uh, what you love doing. All right, Eli, back to this. We got on that for... Smart note reasons, I think. Yep, that's why. All right. Coffee, 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 coffee. Oh, right there. I have a question regarding Seminex, says Eli, and was hoping to understand more about the what was found in the Blue Book Synod report. Are current students of the seminary required to read the report, and where can one find a copy? Thank you, Eli. Uh, Inside Baseball. All right, so you're not LCMS. You, you kind of don't care about the blue book. You probably should care about what it meant to be an evangelical as opposed to being a mainline Christian during this time period, which is that all the churches that were in the country that everyone was going to before this suddenly started teaching that the Bible had errors in it. And evangelicalism is a bunch of Christians saying, we won't put up with that. We'll have new churches then. And they go and they do that. Now, interestingly, evangelicalism has come full circle. They often do. Uh, where many among them are teaching these things. The emergent church movement was one edge of that. You certainly see a loosening of things like sin and the teaching of Joel Olstein and others, you know, largest influences that they are, influencers that they are. Anyway, but it all kind of comes down to, is the Bible true or not, right? And that's what this, why the Seminex question for the LCMS is an important question for everyone else, is when you realize that you're in a situation where your leaders no longer believe the Bible is true, whatever that means, you know, what do you do about it? Seminex is an example of where the laity in the congregations and the church body took the whole body back. The problem was it was a bit one-sided and unaware politically, certainly didn't recognize the problem institutionalism had foisted upon us as churches. And uh, so, you know, where it is is where it is. Now, the question then, uh, but, but no, let me, before I get to that, uh, so what happened, though, was you had the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod as one of these liberalizing mainline bodies that was promoting things like abortion in its periodicals. The Lutheran Witness was promoting abortion in the 60s. You had the body taken back by the laity by vote, by vote in their convention. And we've been political beasts fighting for power ever since. But they made a stand. They said, we believe in this. Now, no, eh, 
do you do it by vote? Do you do it by power? I mean, th- th- that's an interesting question. Uh, maybe for another time. I'm glad for my church bodies, historic people who would not let the false teachers railroad them. I am thankful for this. And so that's why this question is important because wherever you are, even just a little congregation by yourself, like, yeah, don't get railroaded by liars. And that may not be the pastor. <laughs> the, the best false teachers, uh, if they're not your called pastor, are not pastors. Right? They're the ones who try to, to get rid of the called pastor who's orthodox. Uh, that's a false teacher. That's a wolf. Uh, and yeah, they might be your best friend that's been at church your whole life. You didn't even realize it. Wow. You did. Wow. What happened there? Right. Well, I don't know. You know, I'm not, I'm, I'm speaking hypo- hypothetically, so I can't really answer that question at all. Uh, okay. So regarding Seminex and LCMS education at the moment, you know, uh, you want to know more. The blue book report is this. So uh, there is a vote to get a new president for the LCMS. The sitting president is removed. New one's the first famous Preuss. Uh, and his task is to deal with St. Louis Seminary. And the president there, uh, I believe John Teachin is his name. Uh, and uh, most of the faculty teaching historical criticism, the critical race theory. Yeah. Well, just do that to the Bible, right? Kind of like that. Not quite, but kind of like that. And then do it to the Bible. And um, they were teaching this, you know, Jonah's not real, six day creations right out, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and the Preuss movement uh, is to look into this. Now, uh, J.O. Preuss is a mixed political figure. It's hard to talk about him in Missouri without hurting people uh, or getting people upset. Um, but I'm, I'm sympathetic to him, even though I don't laud him either. I, I see him as like any man who ascends to that office has a hard, hard job. It's just not going to do everything right. I don't think you can. There's just too many things you have to try to choose between and you're going to choose some things wrong at some point. But I think he, he did a laudable job of trying to be a Christian in this godless institution that they were attempting to take back and then take back another one. And in that, he didn't move as fast as he maybe could for some people. Uh, and there's there's complaints about that and there's complaints he moved too fast. And the same things are levied against our current president. You know, it's like, like well, you, you're... You are, uh, you are darned if you do, and you are darned if you don't. And, and if this weren't YouTube, I'd, I'd say the biblical words. Um, is actually, you're, you're blessed if you do, and you're blessed if you don't, because you get to repent and be forgiven no matter what. Uh, so what he did, though, was he formed a study team, and that study team was to go into the seminary in St. Louis and figure out what was actually being taught. Because all we have is like some reports from a guy named Herman Otten who has shown himself to be an interesting witness over the course of years, and we won't, we won't follow that rabbit trail. Um, but, you know, it did open the box, and, and they went in, and the, so the Blue Report, Book Report, is, is like interviews with students and uh, teachers and, uh, you know, everything that they were said, and there's a lot of political stuff. When it was initially released, there was a bunch of stuff that was uh, uh, cut out. There were documents that were sealed and not opened until just recently. So if you really want to know, Eli, I don't know the name of the book, but if you call Concordia Publishing House, I'm pretty sure their services department still is filled with fairly kind people, and they will happily tell you about the book on Seminex that CPH published like in the last 15 years that's this thick that will have everything you ever wanted on the blue book inside of that thing. Um, are current students required to read this? No. <laughs> I'm not sure why why we would. Um, we're not reading other stuff. We should be reading first anyway. The more we ask the students to do, the less we actually read the Bible. I'll tell you that. And uh, <laughs> oh, you go to this class on this and this evening class on this. And what? Well, you need a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And you sprinkle this in. Why? Because someone complained once. Okay. 
Wow. And we don't, we, you taught us Greek and we never used it. What on earth, people? What on earth? I, forgive me. It's the system. I'm not, it's not you. We're all in the system. We're all in the system. And we need to speak. So, <laughs> no, to my knowledge, I don't know. You might have a class now taught by a prof where that's reading. It's hard to know. Profs make their own reading lists, just like in colleges uh, where, you know, I'm going to teach a class on Matthew. So here's my reading list. And it's going to include heterodox stuff on it because you're engaging all the study that's ever been done on Matthew. And this heretic did all this Greek work and he got all the words right. And now you can learn, right? So you, you, it's a, it is a, a different level of scholarship that I did not have my mind ready for before I went to seminary. I was expecting to go to a Bible school. I still kind of wish I had actually. And yet there's something here. I mean, uh, you're, you're learning to be what they train you with the seminary education is like, you are a ninja of theology. doesn't mean you're a good ninja. You might be an evil ninja. I don't know, but you have a, you have a whole nother level of, of, uh, theological thought you can do. My complaint would be is we're still, we're, we're running that whole thing on the fumes of Western platonic society. And it's, you know, as you know, these institutions aren't doing so well. And my concern is that we're not really passing much on anymore. Uh, we have a name, but what is that name passing on? And a, a small catechism, for sure, is still there. So you know, that's a good place to start. You cannot unify if you won't admit you're divided. Yeah. Yeah, LCMS, I'm talking to you. <laughs> oh, man. Eli, yeah. So um, why do I think it's not necessary? It's going to be like if you really want to know about this guy, one prof, because like historically he matters, like this document would be where you could find like an interview with him that had a lot of details in it. And he gave up one thing where he said, yeah, I don't teach this. And it's like, oh, look, yeah, they're, they're liars. Like, so uh, it's a lot of digging for a history that unless that history matters to you for a reason, I don't know what you're going to gain out of it, which is why it's not going to be taught. They teach us or they did teach us about Seminex. I mean, much of what I'm saying here was what I was taught at St. Louis. I don't know what they teach now. I know that the that organization, that faculty as a whole has drifted since I've been there in, in one direction. Um, and uh, the other one has drifted in a different direction. And neither of them are toward me. <laughs> neither of them are necessarily away from me either. Um, although maybe St. Louis, maybe St. Louis more. Um, what do I mean by that? I can't say that they teach this or they teach that. I can't tell you there's a good seminary and that it's going to be fine if you just pick the right one. That's like hoping in princes again. Stop it. Stop hoping in princes. Stop hoping in institutions. Uh, and that's where, so what's the end goal of this? If the goal is to see how liars lie and to, to, I don't know. It's just, it seems like a lot of detail for a very simple point, which is that we should read our Bible more and chasing the blue book is less of that, right? And, but if it's a particular interest to you, maybe like your family, um, your genealogies and stuff, inherit, inheritance, I get, if I was a price, I'd be very interested in that stuff. And I, I was, I still am, but like not blue book interested, not blue book interested. That's, that's pretty like, like go learn Hebrew instead. It'll be about as hard. <laughs> oh, Jules says this, uh, and by the way, we'll probably go over time today. I'm definitely going to get to all the questions that are, uh, that are on the pages on the screen. And we've got quite a few left. It's 1030. For that reason, I'll just happily take a five-second break. You know, it has been asked. That music is not copyright. That music belongs to the life of the world. It was put on YouTube by a man named Matthew Harrison. Uh, going down the road and feeling bad, I believe is what it's called. I'm not feeling too bad. It was before you got elected. Um, and you, you put a little, uh, distortion on that banjo. Let me tell you that thing, that thing rocks. Jules says this, hi, Rev Fisk. I go to a non-denominational classical school that teaches complete heresy. 
Well, that's good. I, I mean, that's interesting. Um, my guess is many schools teach complete heresy in a corner all the time, often, usually. But yeah, okay. Uh, I am struggling being surrounded by this environment 24-7. I think you're struggling being on earth, but let's keep going. And I mean to discuss with my leadership my struggles of conscience and listen to their teaching. That's good. You should go to the source. But remember, you're the student. You're going there because you're there to learn. And in theory, that means you assume they're right, even when you think they're wrong. And to some extent within the classroom, your task should be to be the, the disciple, uh, to be the one who is there to learn even when you think they're wrong. Uh, now, I would agree with you. Generally, one should not put themselves in the context of a false teacher. And so you're supposed to flee them. So balance your decision making. And, and you maybe have no choice with this school, right? Your parents put you there. Again, you're, you're wrestling with earth. You're not wrestling with the school. You're wrestling with earth. Earth sucks. <laughs> Life here is not good. Like it is the creator made it. It's not evil in the sense like it's, it's not hell yet. Yeah. But it's, it's really not good. And the longer you're here, the more evident this will become to you. Of course, that may not convince you that you should go somewhere else. Um, you might try to go to Mars, but I'm more talking about, you know, what, what I just read in Ecclesiastes, uh, the day of death is better than the day of birth. Put that one on your license plate, the Bible. <laughs> Right. I mean, we need to remember this. I'm not really kidding. Like, this goes back to the thing about Proverbs, too. Someone's like, oh, but that's Ecclesiastes. Yeah, it's the Holy Bible of Jesus Christ. The day of death is better than the day of birth. Go look it up. It's there. It's there. You just don't want to read it, right? And you don't want to believe it when you do read it. Read it. And then remember when Paul said, it's better by far, far to depart me with Christ. Like, it's not like they're different Bibles. Earth is going to be a place that will be better if it ended every day for the rest of your life. And you can know this with certainty the more you know the resurrection of Jesus is coming because then you know that if the end comes, it's going to be better. It's, just, it's always going to be better. And so, again, with that, then you have a certain patient capacity to endure the tribulation that is set before you. Does that mean you have to sit at the feet of false teachers? No. Who would I talk to first? The people who are sending you to this school. Is that you? Why are you at the school? You know? Oh, because you need to. You got to bow beside your master in the temple of Dagon, but you've been baptized in the Jordan River and you know the truth. Then you take the notes that you got to take. You realize you're in a machine. You're not in a human organization. You're in a machine. It's a, it's a, it's a factory for information. It is not a, a, a dojo for contemplation. It's a factory for information. You're in the machine to get whatever information you find valuable based on the discipline you put into it. So I don't think you need to say anything to your teacher necessarily. You can, like I said before, it's good to talk to people you're angry at. Try to be more like Jesus. <laughs> How would Jesus talk to you? more gently okay i mean it's, it's always good advice always good advice um so i have any recommendations about how to do this yeah uh, i talk to your parents first and jules i mean you're going to a a school right yeah so is it your parents i talk to your parents about this i'd be like hey i don't like this teaching it's really bothering me then i would encourage you if they say what i said which is that it's school 
It's a machine where you're going to learn something. You're also going to learn how to not learn. You're going to learn how to reject. You're going to learn how to discern. It's, it's a training ground. Your teacher has all the advantages and you're going to have to figure out how to not believe the lies they say while finding the truth they say. You, my son, have a quest to become a man, right? Jules, yeah, I think you're a guy. Um, so like, like see it that way as opposed to like, I need my safe space where only orthodoxy is ever preached. Like, like what? Where... Do you know the whole planet was underwater at one point because it got so bad? Are we in Alice in Wonderland now or were they then? That's a question. So, yeah, I also want to respect those in authority. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Both as those to whom I look, I am to look here and as men over me in authority. Thank you so much. Right. So now, are you someone who's being converted to biblical Christianity in a church and school that you find is unorthodox and you're struggling with that? Okay. It's a little bit of a different thing. Then again, talk to your parents and you need to find a church where you can listen to the pastor. That's very important. So my advice does not in any way apply to a church where you can't listen to the pastor unless you're doing what I said earlier and you're a whole Lutheran congregation going to a Roman Catholic church on purpose. <laughs> but otherwise, no, you should not. You need to go to a church where you can listen to the pastor. No, I mean, Don't gather to yourself a teacher to suit your own itching ears. Find the voice of the shepherd who is Jesus Christ and attune to it. That's that. I think that goes without saying, but I guess maybe it doesn't. I, I hope I'm helping, Jules. Send another question if I didn't, because I feel like perhaps the the question is too narrow from my part to really give you good advice. Um, but I would say, you know, are you a Lutheran at a non-denominational classical school? Then my my advice about just bear down and deal with it, man. Um, that that kind of stands. Are you a non-denominational Christian who's becoming a a, a Lutheran? You realize, um, and, you know, in in conviction. That that's the best way to describe you? Well, then, yeah, you got to talk to your parents. And you do got to talk to your teachers. Um, but expect your teachers to try to convince you not to believe what you believe. And they're the master. You're the disciple. And you're never going to convince them otherwise by going straight at them. Have you found my book? Talk them into it. It's free. All you got to do is go to redfist.com slash newsletter, sign up for the newsletter, and you will get a copy. Did you already do it and lose it? Just go to Discord and write at Shadowbroker and ask a copy and you'll probably get a copy that way too um and so uh talk them into it would be what i'd recommend before you go and start debating people right you're young i'm assuming right learn learn how to be the disciple and have the power to convince people without ever having to debate now i'm not a master at that one either yet that's why i wrote the book was to try to learn about it all right do 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 moving on d not d d is not your name d is the number Anonymous says this, ooh my, a little long here. Uh, one of the comforts of confessional Lutheranism is that it does take the emotional pressure off the sinner in a doctrinal sense. God gives his good and efficacious gifts in word and sacrament, regardless of how my emotional state <clears throat> or how I feel about anything at any given time. Yes, exactly. Mysticism, right? You do not have to be a mystic. You can kill mysticism with Lutheranism by recognizing your emotions are a complete lie, a lie told by your flesh, and they should never be the thing you use to discern how God feels about you. Through this ordeal lever, she goes on, I have come to realize that the shunning of emotion and relationship in the context of faith can sometimes be taken to the extreme. Yes, it can. Uh, and without realizing it, I feel guilty for having emotions and feelings about a disagreement with my former pastor. Now, that's a little more specific. So let's, let's, let's slow down here. So what I said before about like your emotions are generally a lie from your carnal flesh needs to be tampered with the fact that the word of God will redeem those emotions to be good for you and your neighbor insofar as they are bound up into the life of Jesus Christ, which is the story, the history, the truth, the word about who he is. So um, you're right if you notice 
that in some traditions, some churches, definitely some congregations and families, there is not much zeal, emotion regarding their Christianity. And and that's that's a problem too, I think. Now, pietism, I think, historically as a word, is to describe those who try to force emotion on the Christian faith. Uh, I'm not sure if there is a word for those who, in reaction to pietism, refuse to have emotions. <laughs> but it seems that that's a, that's a place where, um, yeah, if you've come out of that, right, and, you've, and you, you kind of had a, a traumatizing experience individually with emotion as your idol, and you found a way to not have emotion as your idol, to, to find the healthy way to engage again, it, it, it takes some time. It takes some time. It's not easy. And so, yeah, you run into feelings of guilt, right? It is difficult to feel joy when you are feeling shame. They don't really go hand in hand much. And it is difficult, impossible, I would say, to feel joy when you don't have any hope. Again, you're not going to have any hope when you're busy focused on your shame. Guilt is a reality that can be felt and then the shame in it can be dealt with or not. So guilt does not have to be the same as shame. Uh, But I would say you probably don't feel guilty in your comment. You probably feel ashamed for having emotions and feelings about a disagreement. If you felt just kind of guilty, it'd be like, okay, there's a repercussion. I had this conversation there is a debt to be paid, right? But but the emotion of I'm not valuable, that that's I mean, a guilty conscience, but a guilty conscience is a shamed conscience. So you feel ashamed about something in the past um, with a former pastor. Now, the point here is, it, regardless of who it was with, you feel ashamed. And the answer to shame is always that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and he's your God. And he has declared to you that in him there is nothing to be ashamed of no matter what it is, even if you did it after becoming a Christian. In Jesus Christ, there's nothing to be ashamed of. And he tells you this so that you can turn back to what you just did that was shameful and not be ashamed of it. But recognize the guilt and deal with the guilt. Deal with the debt. Deal with the person. Repentance is a dish best served cold. Have I said it before? So, you know, you don't really want a lot of emotion in your repentance because the emotion in your repentance is a combination of anger and (laughs) self-control. You know, and then it's, uh, there's a pressing that goes on. There's, there's a, a silencing of the heart, of the soul that goes on that then can allow you to, to see the other and speak. But again, I think this happens not by saying, I will do this, but by having someone else say to you, you are forgiven. Right? Do not be ashamed, not because of who you are, but your shame is taken from you now. Your shame is taken from you now. Yeah? Um, so, uh, back to your particular issue. Uh, uh, I, cerebrally, I knew of Jesus' love for me and have comfort of receiving the sacrament. I realized that I hadn't felt any love or joy in my faith for some time. Yeah, yeah. Welcome to my my heart too. Um, I, I I'll say that I, for a good portion of my life, uh, I would readily confess I'm not even sure what joy feels like. Uh, and I would say that until I started preaching about it in James this last time, I don't know if I did. I think I do now. I don't want to pin it down too hard and like, and like, you know, make it about me or something, but it's quite possible for the experience of the modern life to steal joy from you. And it does it again by taking hope from you. And it does it again by focusing you on shameful things rather than on hopeful things. And what's the hopeful thing? The return of Jesus. Yeah. 
Um, so, you know, until you're going to hear about the return of Jesus as a physical reality, you should expect this week or three years from now, um, sometime soon enough, until that's like the, the story that you're just eating and living on every day, um, you're going to continue to shame yourself with stories of what you're doing in the present with your idols. That's just what's going to happen. Right. So what's going to happen? So, again, I don't know that doesn't necessarily speak to the specifics of your conversation and whatever issue you have with your pastor. I highly recommend that with that pastor, you just go and, and say, like, whatever happened, uh, I continue to feel that I owe you uh, personally, that I just I just wasn't right enough in this conversation, in our in our engagement. And so is there something I can say or do or hear? Just I'll just hear that you need to tell me um, before I move on again. Right. I'm not here to fight with you. I'm here to, to reconcile with you. Just as people, just just bodily here, face to face. Let's not get into the dogmatic argument. Um, if you need to excommunicate me, that's fine. I'm even fine with that. But you know, I'm not going to walk away in rage and hate. Um, and to try to do that with him or her, I, I don't know where you are. <laughs> him, uh, uh, you know that I think that would be valuable. Uh, not easy, not easy. Uh, 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 blessed is the one whom Jesus Christ rebukes. Yeah, I believe it would be helpful to have some conversations in a Lutheran context about how to be vulnerable. <laughs> Uh, how to respond to people when they are, uh, to not throw out being relational with people for fear that things might usurp doctrinal teaching. That's just it. We're so busy uh, treating Christianity like it's an information download. <laughs> like a doctrine is here so you can know it all. Like that's the, if you really are a Lutheran, you get to know it all. Oh, goodness. Goodness. They think we're proud. You know that? Everybody out there. They, I mean, the ones who know us, they think we're proud. And, and I get it. We're not the LCA, so we shouldn't... We're, we're proud because we're not the LCA. But like after that... <laughs> <laughs> vulnerability you ain't kidding you ain't kidding just some thoughts which may or may not be worth two cents yeah a couple bucks at least thank you for your work i enjoy food for thought and it's continued oh it's the same same concept though here same person i appreciate you shared your thoughts about my grandfather oh it's just same concept maybe um a recent painful separation from this is when i talked last week uh in um it wasn't mishpat it was the one after that uh year gods um you can hear about my paternal grandfather and uh, how I had to come to terms with my disappointment in him as a person, largely because he, you know, was an invalid, <laughs> but it's like not entirely his, his fault. Right. But like, I still had the experience of seeing the model of father and grandfather, which is, um, it was depressing. Let's put it that way. <clears throat> so uh, sharing that now you share uh, a recent painful separation from my longtime congregation has made me wrestle with my faith in ways I never expected. I question whether it was worth it to find another church and doubted I had the strength to start over again in a new place. The hurt was so deep. I seriously contemplated turning away entirely. <clears throat> yeah. People who are hurt by congregations, uh, you know, cults, um, uh, <laughs> we all kind of are a culture one way or the other. When you walk out of that and it's in the name of Jesus, you got hurt. It's easy to blame Jesus. Easy, easy, easy. And even if no one knows this would happen, you just were taught false teaching, you felt sick, you left, and now you hate Jesus or you don't care, right? Like, yeah, that's how the sower is uh, fought by the his enemy, right? That the enemy comes and scatters the terrors in the midst. I finally called an older sister, uh, Anonymous goes on, who encouraged me, especially for the sake of my children, to remain strong. She pointed me to another local congregation whose pastor she knew personally, and we have since been welcomed there, but the hurt from the entire situation will take a long time to heal if it ever does completely. Yeah, well... I did not come to bring peace on the earth, but a sword. If uh, judgment begins with the household of God, uh, what shall become of the unbeliever? It, there, we, it's it's a uh, the text for Easter two uh, in in the one year lectionary, Good Shepherd Sunday, is from Ezekiel. The text from Easter one's from Ezekiel two. It's the dry bones. That was great, right? But Easter two 
is when the good shepherd decides to judge between sheep and sheep as the good shepherd. And it's, it's kind of intense, actually. Uh, he basically says that I'm going to come in and if you're a fat sheep, I'm just going to get rid of you. And you're a lean sheep, I'm going to feed you. When the church goes through persecution, that's kind of what happens. Not that he kills the people who are faithful, per se, but that uh, there is a tempering going on wherein one can either draw closer to what they believe or insert more new beliefs to try to justify their present circumstances. And I would suggest that if you're a pastor at this time who is inserting new beliefs into your theology to justify the current circumstances, rather than attempting to draw closer to the scriptures as they authentically are, that that's not good for those who are under you 40 years from now, 30 years from now. And that if you're a person who's under a pastor right now, the only thing that matters is not how far your head is out. It's how far your pastor's head is out. Is your pastor seeing clearly what's going on and working for the good of the church 50 years from now? Or is he just doing what has to be done because everyone says so? If that's happening, you're being blown by the wind. A new animation has overtaken you. A dark winter may be a lot darker and longer and less visible than you realize. Um, So, yeah, there's going to be a lot of pain as God calls the herd, which is the language, again, from Ezekiel, that Easter Good Shepherd text, which is coming up. I'll be preaching on that, actually. Uh, and so um, what I can say to you here is is just this. Yeah, pain and hurt are everywhere. And any church where people aren't talking about it, it just means you're burying it. If we're here to be anything to each other while we wait for Jesus' return, it is comforters. We're not, to, we're not going to stop the suffering. We're not going to keep people from dying. We're here to comfort everyone in their affliction by reminding them that their affliction is the filling up in faith of their connection to Jesus Christ. For the world, it's a curse. For the world, it's a damnation that's about to take over. For you, it's a resurrection that is first-fruited into being so that rather than have to have the safe space of your own body, you can live with your own flesh and actually take some self-control over the thing by means of patient endurance, gentleness, Again, all of this coming from Jesus to you first. From Jesus to you first. Your king who is with you, not against you first. Your king who sends you rather than demands of you first. How would Jesus talk to you as your king today about that thing that you're bothered by? That you're yelling at yourself about? That you're feeling shame over? What would he do? He'd be more gentle and he'd remind you of his flesh and blood, his wounds. He'd probably also tell you what you're doing wrong, but it would feel like what you're supposed to do right instead. Less shame. Vulnerability, it's not a, I don't know, I don't know how to make it happen, but I do know you got to go first. Yeah, you got to go first. Andrew says, uh, I was recently watching Pastor Wolfmuller's video on Luther's view of the institution of being a soldier as good work. Uh, Since Wolfmuller was here, if he's still here, um, have him... Hey, Wolf, are you, if you're still watching, um, since this is a question about you, <laughs> feel free to call me on Skype. Uh, this also made me ponder Jesus' sermon on the mount uh, when he tells them to turn the other cheek and love your enemies and how to reconcile the two thoughts of it being uh, both okay and not okay to be a tool of retaliation. Yeah. My question is two-part. I'm going to read it. I'll come back. Uh, outside of the institution of a soldier under the authority of a governing body, 
that is acting in good faith, is it permittable, if not demanded, that a Christian take up arms to defend the persecuted in time of need? Example, non-military Christians outside of Germany banded together and fought Nazis persecuting Jews in World War II. Uh, and two, if it is permittable to take up arms, does that only apply to those outside of themselves? That is, can they do it to help others, but not themselves? But when the individual in turn becomes persecuted, are they to lay down their weapons to suffer the gospel? Example, they are captured and imprisoned. Thank you for your wisdom. All right, Andrew. So the the place uh, the place to go for this, if you want like the dogma, is called the Magdeburg Confession. Again, Mad Christian Discord, us the chill, get into Citadelia, ask about the Magdeburg Confession. Or actually, go to the Magdeburg Confession podcast. That's a channel. <laughs> and, and like ask there these questions. Because if you really want to get down to the legal argument for what I am allowed to do and what I am not allowed to do, so I can live a just life before my neighbor with regard to whether I turn the cheek or shoot back. That conversation and that dogma, I'll just, I'll put my hat on it. I'm right there with it. I'm right there with it. Okay. I, I, I'm not going to change what they're saying. So go to them. Um, go to the Magdeburg Confession and see that you have a right to defend yourself. If you can run, you can fight. That's what it comes down to common sense. If you can run, you can fight. But then remember, that Jesus says the supernatural thing to do is to not fight. So the moment we're in a place where we're trying to decide when it's okay to ignore Jesus saying the supernatural thing to do is this, so that we can feel good doing the natural thing, which is in fact just, we've created an obstacle in our faith that I don't think we need to create. And I think we can cut through this a lot easier with a very different approach than can I, can I not? And it's the approach, I'm gonna, I'll admit this is maybe uh, not one everyone's going to see right away or agree with, but it's the Acts 15 approach that sees the language of refraining from blood uh, not so much as about you know sausage <laughs> or the Levitical codes, but what blood has always meant in the history of the world, blood guilt and that kind of thing. It's more to recognize that, like, look, if you're going to take up arms and shoot someone and kill them, you're going to carry that. Your soul is going to carry that. You punch someone, your soul is going to carry that. Can a Christian carry that? Yes. The apostle said, you probably don't want to if you can help it. Like, refrain from these things. Don't be men of blood. Don't be men of blood. So, to me, do you see how I like? I don't want to answer this question as a modern person anymore with like, okay, here's your legal argument to go back to the courts in Germany and show how we really are the Lutherans who are allowed to fight back. Like, where are you living? Right? And so where I'm living is this. I know it's important for me to be able to handle a firearm and teach my kids that because it's possible we live in an age where there's a lot more wildlife, including dangerous wildlife, existing. Because if the power does have a problem at some point, well, nature comes back. So to be able to defend yourselves from the wolf, I think is a reasonable, not metaphor, that also happens to be a metaphor, but it's a reasonable, not metaphor, right? And so to learn to manage firearms for the sake of uh, surviving in the wilderness, you pick your firearm and you complain about how it's not the right one for shooting that with, I don't care, get a bow, right? The, the point is, like, there's, there's a reasonable thing that isn't killing my brother that involves weapons. And I should, as a man know that and have my son know that even though the casino is working right now and the lights are flashy right but again pinocchio's pleasure island increasingly to me 
<laughs> that thing goes into the sea at one point, right? Something like that. So <laughs> for a long time, and I only saw the Disney one. My boy's reading the real one. So, so okay, try to pull it back. So the blood, okay, I, I think it's important to be able to shoot for the sake of wildlife, right? Honestly, straight up. That's my argument. Um, the day that I have to shoot another man will be a day I regret. But I know that day might come. And I'm not going to give a prescription for your conscience on that day. Nor after that day shall I do anything other than remember I'm baptized into Jesus and God help me. But I'm already there. So on that day, when I have the weapon and the need and the people around me who have authorized me in my mind to work with them for the good of all, then that's what I'm going to do. But I'm going to do that always as a man of not blood. That is, how, if you're following me, we're going to talk them out of it. We're going to, and you know what? And maybe it'll get me killed. <laughs> I listened to, um, I listened to uh, two of my old podcasts on the Maccabees because, uh, you know, it's the triumphal entry this week and there's some palm branches in that thing and that's weird. And uh, so I'll, I'll preach on it more. Um, but uh, so listen to the sermons if you want more on that. But the, um, the Maccabees, so you, most people know Judas the Hammer, which is where the name Maccabee comes from. And uh, Judas the Hammer is the first of three brothers, uh, really there's five, who are sons of a guy named Mattathias, who lead the Jewish people to cast off Antiochus Epiphanes IV, the one who thinks he's God, his pagan altar from the temple and restore temple worship, as it should have been. Uh, And these guys who are warriors are also all priests, right? So they're priests who then almost end up kings, and then their kids do end up kings, and that's where it all goes bad and Herod and stuff. So, like, um, Jonathan... The second of the three famous ones. I, do I, is, am I allowed to smile when a guy named Jonathan's awesome? Can, can I Can I at least... I mean, it's not me. He's some other guy with me. Like the one that was David's. Like they're, just, they're just awesome dudes. Jonathan's are just awesome dudes in the Bible. I hope I am one. Anyway, uh, Jonathan, he's not in the Bible, he's in the Apocrypha. Jonathan, after the loss of Judas, who's like their warrior leader, who's bound them all together, he ends up with like a small crowd like living around the Dead Sea, like hiding. They're, they're like, they're like completely, they've lost. They're done. And within a couple of years, he has talked himself into ruling the entire area with Rome, like giving him more stuff. <laughs> he did, I mean, he had a man, group of men. They were fighting men. There were some moments where there were battles, but the entire agenda, he gets all the way to being king and then king of like uh, extended areas around, like the Idumeans, he's over them. He talks them into it. I think Christianity was involved (laughs) somehow, right? There's something there. And so to bring it back to your conversation, I think the goal of the Christian ethos, don't turn the other cheek, is that we are not to be men of blood. And as any man who's a soldier who is found bloodless can tell you, it's not good to be a man of blood. It doesn't feel good. But then it's addictive too, like any other addiction. So it's, it's quite evil once it gets going. I've not experienced this. I just believe it. Okay. Um, so for your part, remember that when the weapon's in hand and remember that every single one that you make bleed, that blood is guilt in the body of Jesus. He's got you, 
But on the last day, your Lord's going to be like, well, I love you. Come on in. But your heart's going to be like, could I have done it different? Could I have found a way out? Could there have been another? You're always going to be asking that up to the day of judgment. You're always going to be asking that. Could, could I have? Could I have? Was there another way? And unless you're burying it, you're drowning it, right? You can drown it. Um, <laughs> I, I, I get that. I get that. Fantasy. Fantasy, right? Uh, escape. So did I answer your question? I mean, I think I did. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back to the Magdeburg and say, look, those guys got the legal, like if you want to go tit for tat, what's the, the moment you can be justly defending yourself? They'll help you with it. And the answer is, if it's time to run, it's time to fight. Unless it's time to run, because that's the better way to fight, which might be the case. Guerrilla is the way to go if you're going to fight a greater power. Everyone knows that. Um, that's why the church works is because we're a guerrilla war, uh, with words, <laughs> just with words. And, uh, and it continues to go on, uh, because everyone else is busy shooting the guerrillas that are fighting with, with guns. Um, I mean, really? Uh, so does this help? Does this help? I hope that helps. Uh, and we're going to keep moving here. I'm going to take, it's 11 o'clock. I'm going to take a short break. I got multiple questions here left. I definitely want to come back and get them. I just want to do at least a minute here and breathe. All right, all right, all right, all right. Here we go. <laughs> Back it up. Too many movie quotes in my life. I want more Bible quotes. I'm tired of movie quotes. All right. Hey, Pastor Fisk. I just found your podcast after watching loads of old Worldview Everlasting videos on YouTube. Wow. Isn't that incredible? That's incredible. That's still doing stuff. That's incredible. The first podcast I heard was the discussion of Gordon Kyle. Can you imagine you find like Baptism 2.0 and like all these like really... Um, overweight and flashy me, you know, bouncing around with random stuff. And you're like, oh, he's got a podcast and it's Gordon Call and a previous stream of powers. Your first drop in. That's amazing. This all happened before I was born. That is the Gordon Call thing. And then you know the guy, not exactly, right? But by extension. So here, this is a fascinating story. Um, this all happened before I was born, but my dad was a small town mechanic from the time he finished his military service until he retired and did several house calls to Call's farm. I asked him about it and uh, after a North Dakota history class that briefly discussed it. And he told me that Gordon was really nice to him, but he had some quote, different thoughts about things. And yeah, a brief history of power. This would be two episodes ago. I can't remember the title. It's not the most recent episode. Um, we, we dealt with again, Gordon call as an American terrorist, uh, so-called and the deal with, uh, what domestic terrorism, white national terrorism, and its past in America, where this has come from, and how amazingly it's farmers who lose their farms a lot of times that this ends up being a thing for. Um, so just looking at that as a as a uh, what a prototype, an archetype within American history, and then connecting that more recently to things like mental illness and uh, pharmaceuticals and homelessness and all that. So again, a brief history of power um, and selling it to you, but you like knew the guy or like connected the guy. So you asked about this guy. Your dad says he was, he was different, right? John Birch, but John Birch was normal, right? And, and Jordan, Gordon call was just a little further down. Um, but then dad told me that after the day after calls encounter with marshals near Medina, my dad was pulled over driving from Harvey to Minot more three, more times than he had been pulled over his entire life. Yeah. I've, I've lived in North Dakota. I've been pulled over a few times, but I was going faster than your dad was. And they don't really pull you over much unless you're doing too fast like i was and i'm sorry i paid i paid i've i've moved on i'm just i swear (laughs) like i'm i'm questioning my ordination now look at that look at the guilt the shame oh my goodness anyway um right away he thought (laughs) he thought i right away he thought he was just like checkpoint to catch call but after finding out 
others he knew weren't stopped on the same road. That's so fascinating. He uh, he believed that his pickup had to have been tagged through surveillance of call while he was doing mechanic work there. So he did mechanic work at Call's farm, and he gets like picked up a bunch of times to see if he's moving stuff for him, right? And that's how afraid they were, this guy. They really thought he was an actual terrorist. He had like his kid and two guns or something. Uh, Nolan uh, goes on and says, uh, doesn't add much to the discussion. I think it's just fascinating. Like the history is real, right? Uh, just an interesting thought that would have added to Call's distrust. Yeah, I, I can imagine that if they're actually being tailed by the FBI, the paranoid delusions will increase. <laughs> on a different note, thank you so much for those YouTube videos. I recently had a crisis of faith because of some Roman arguments someone brought to me that mostly just confused me. Legal arguments are intended to obfuscate the scenario and lead to the judge and lawyer's uh, assured victory by boilerplate in most cases. Uh, a lot of your work helps me realize and respond with the fact that they were talking about American Christianity, not Lutheranism. Yeah. And answer many of their objections, not to their satisfaction, but to the point that they have pretty much been mute about it since. Thank you again, Nolan. Yeah. Yeah. And you could, I think almost anybody could do this if you're still in any Christian denomination. I mean, you are doing this. Some of you are out there listening to me and you're like converting to Lutheran theology, but you're still like whatever you are. And your pastors even, right? Like, I, I think you can do this. Uh, you can make the reasonable argument for being where you are <laughs> and not having to leave. Um, what I think if, if Lutheranism were to do this well, we would be able to show everybody that they don't have to join us to join us, but that we could be the glue that pulls it all back together. Um, cause we can, we can see where everybody is and we can help them meet in the middle where they have overreacted in their theology. That is, for example, uh, where Calvin and Arminius went to two extremes, right? We can confess our way through the center of that one without all the controversy. If we just pay attention to the Bible and we Lutherans, not only did we know it before it was a controversy, we had a controversy about it too. <laughs> and so like, we, like the formula of Concord is just a document there that gives us what the Bible says on this matter that can help us all join together. This is where the Augsburg Confession, the Lutheran Confessions, really, if they are anything, they're ecumenical documents. They're meant to be uh, pulling us as Western Christians into a reformation of the whole Western Catholic Church as biblical Christianity. And I don't see why, just because the Pope still thinks celibacy is the only issue that matters, why that should just make us all be quiet and have our own clubs. Call me nuts again. I'm off on my tangent. But if you're not going to fight the Antichrist, what are you doing with your life? You hear that? So, uh, yeah, you're welcome for the answers to guard your heart and your life against the wily arguments of the Antichrist that do make use of the history of the church, the visible church, and the Bible quite well. Systems, systems over time are, well, they're powerful. Speaking of, left this one for the end. This one's kind of tough. Uh, I'm probably, I'm probably radical on this, um, but Mark says this. I, I wanted to ask something I've thought of for a while, since I've been a Christian, I used to, I'm assuming you mean pre-Christian, love psychedelics. We're thinking like mushrooms, LSD, and the interesting experiences and the way they've helped me in the past. I've even microdosed psilocybin, that's the mushroom, as a Christian, mainly for the medicinal benefits. But lately, I've been getting a desire again to do LSD. So LSD is a, a chemical compound. It is not grown. It is made out of stuff in a lab that mimics psilocybin. So the psilocybin mushroom is a natural occurring mushroom that uh, gives a psychedelic that is a kind of a lost experience effect. It's a, a journey. If I understand it right, it's a journey into the subconscious. You're able to really find out who you are, but you also will absorb more than you normally do. It's kind of returning to a childlike state. Um, and you can also run into things there uh, like your own demons that you've been carrying around for a long time. And uh, so 
Uh, we can talk more about you know what that is, but both of those those things, psilocybin and LSD, they both effectively do the same thing. And uh, psilocybin is it grows out of the ground and does it. LSD is just a manufactured version. So it's interesting that you would you would suggest to me or you're asking about LSD versus psilocybin, even though you're using psilocybin as a microdose. I, I find that a fascinating like move. And there's a number of category jumps going on. Um, but again, this is a really complex question. And all I want to do is inform on the question today, mostly just to show that this question's a fair question. I do think it's a very fair question. Um, uh, so, uh, it, you know, you have done LSD in the past for emotional benefits. That's what you say. So what you just said is you have self-medicated with an antidepressant in the past and it worked. That's what you just said. Okay. Now the language of drug use and illicitness and how you get LSD, which is a legal, illegal substance, right? That comes into play, but recognize that what we're really talking about here in a moral issue, if you're going to make this a moral question is, am I allowed to medicate myself with something that makes me feel better? And how much does my community have a say in that? All right. That's where we are. That's the moral, that's the ethic we got to wrestle with. And I think it's, I think it's when we have, I said this a year and a half ago, two years ago when I was still doing raw, like we haven't talked about this and it's going to bite us. It's going to bite us hard. And the fact is, what I think is people are doing stuff anyway. <laughs> Christians are, <laughs> right? Without guidance, without, without any information, uh, you know, and uh, young ones probably who like should know better than to be fools at least, right? But, and it does, is, are you a fool for this? I don't know. We don't talk about it. So let, let's, let's go on. Mark says, it helped me with addiction and depression when I used it years ago. See, okay, yeah. So now I'm, I'm going to tangent here. I was introduced to psilocybin, the mushroom, microdosing or single with consultation dosage, um, like you're under supervision the entire time, as a way to do things like end PTSD, one time, one event, one counseling session, end PTSD, end alcohol addiction, end heroin addiction. One time event, with a spiritual leader to walk you through it. Oh, it gets scary when you talk about it that way, though, because how how was this stuff used in the past? Witch doctors. Witch doctors. Yeah, lots of them. So, like, and you can still go down to the South America and do it. You can go get your, your, your guru to lead you through your vision quest or whatever. So, like, do you see how complex this is getting very, very fast? I just went from, like, we can take an alcoholic and sit down in a room for three hours at Johns Hopkins, and he's not an alcoholic afterwards, to people fly to South America to, like, find demons with this stuff like that's that's this stuff and it's some stuff we found you know the tv is powerful too we found that stuff uh and people self-medicate with tv to gain emotional benefits they think right so just because you're self-medicating with something doesn't mean it's actually benefiting you you may think your emotions are improving when they are not and this is where self-medication in theory is not what you want to do this is where in theory the expert or the doctor is there to help guide you I can't say that without thinking of Wellbutrin. I, I was struggling how to answer this question this morning, and Wellbutrin came through my mind again. Wellbutrin uh, has the word well in it. You notice that? Uh, it's not on the market. It's not on the market. You can't get any Wellbutrin. Wellbutrin, I was put on when I was 17. I think 17. Um, I was depressed. Uh, I, I've never been manic, but I've been manically depressed. <laughs> like, I, I hate myself. And I did viciously for a long time. Uh, and... So my parents, um, good Americans as they are, figured it's probably medical, <laughs> right? And so I was, I was taken to see experts, right? And, and what did the experts do? They did what experts do. They, 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 the guy got a cruise or something because he had to put all his patients on Wellbutrin that year because it was the new drug. 
and I got put on Welbutrin, 70-year-old kid. That drug, I stopped taking it after a couple months. It's you know, an antidepressant. Um, I was not self-medicating. I was medicating. I stopped. I self-stopped medicating on the medicating that I was put on by the guy paid for by my church body's health insurance, who probably got a cruise out of putting me on this drug that was taken off the market. After I stopped taking it, I stopped taking it because it made my head buzz. I was like, I don't like this. This doesn't feel good. I'm done. I'm like 17. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm still chasing girls like an idiot. I knew enough to know my head should not buzz like that all the time. I'm done. Three years later, I believe, you can go check the math on it. It's off the market. Why? It killed people. It killed people. So forgive me when I open up this question of being like self-medication versus medication. The distinction is fluid. And the profiteers are many on every level. Where are you going to buy your drugs? There's a profiteer involved. Slip my coffee. (laughs) I know it's not fair trade. It's not fair trade. It's not local. Hmm. Should be, shouldn't it? Wouldn't that be nice if it was? So back to it. You were able to, to deal with this issue with addiction. I learned about this from Tim Ferriss. Okay. So I repent of many Tim Ferriss things. Tim Ferriss helped me. I needed a man to follow. He was a man. I followed him. I learned a lot of things about like making your bed, even though at the current moment, my wife does it for me. I learned how valuable that is as a discipline and a resource in my life. Right. And that, you know, so, so he, he did a lot of really good things. He also, unfortunately is a profiteer. <laughs> like, and so if you caught a wind of profiteering in me over, over, you know, three years ago, it pro- I was wrestling with it. Right. You know, how do you make a better show for the gospel for Jesus and stuff? But like, that's always going to involve profit. And I think trying to profit is one of the great sins of America, right? And rather than taking what we have, being content with today, you know, de- looking at who's around you rather than seeking some quest far away, all that kind of thing. Anyway, so that's all me repenting of Tim Ferriss and yet saying, like, look, look, whoever you listen to, they're living on the same planet you are. And even if they're wrong, you can learn from them. And uh, you can learn what not to do. Oh, he jumped off a cliff and don't, don't do it. Don't eat those crabs unless you cook them. Yeah. Okay. So like, <laughs> right. So one of the things that I found very fascinating about Tim Ferriss was how he moved away from a profiteering for myself to make money model into a, I would like to find, fund something that helps people model and was very vulnerable in public about his own struggle with trauma, childhood struggles, uh, emotional struggles, and how he has used psilocybin as a medicated dosage where he's like measuring to the milligram and stuff, right? Like, like you're like, he's a doctor. He's acting like one. Um, he's doing the work and he's doing it with medical supervision of people who say, go buy it, do this. So he's done all that. And then he takes his money and he starts funding research for it at Johns Hopkins, which is a mixed bag kind of place. But what's the research for again, intervention to stop things like alcoholism, heroin addiction, um, and PTSD. And I'm like, look, you guys threw me on Wellbutrin. You threw me on. I took. I took so many of these serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Um, you know. So like, I'm not going to sit here after the church allowed that to happen to me and tell people who are working with doctors and supervision that they can't learn about this. I do not recommend dosing LSD. <laughs> I do not recommend dosing LSD. I can't tell you the Bible says there's a law that distinguishes between LSD and psilocybin. I don't recommend dosing psilocybin. Just don't go do it. Okay, so here, here's story time. I did. I did. Post-Christian, pre-Christian, somewhere in the middle. Uh, before I was ordained. Before I was married. I tell you what, you have a bad trip, you'll never forget it. That's what I'll tell you. 
You'll never forget it. I've actually had this thought listening to Tim Ferriss. Okay. If I could go back and undo that bad trip with another trip, that'd be paradise in some ways, I think. But that doesn't mean I'm going to do it. No, 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 no. It's not that easy. It's not that easy. Look where you are. Look at the world. Look at the deception around you. Okay. So to be alone, to self-mitigate truly without a community at all, that that's the folly. And then this is where your congregation, your church, your pastor, um, your good friends, your parents, your wife, your husband, even your children are the ones you should be talking to first about all of these things. Like nothing should be done alone. Uh, that, that's just, that's not, the problem is being alone. That's the problem, okay? The trauma of America is loneliness. And so doing something that's going to remove your mind further from reality without other people around who know about this stuff, right? And that's the problem. There's no study of this. There's no Christian way to look at this. Um, you have to wait. We have to wait until the platonic pagans figure it out and make it FDA approved. And then we think it's okay to talk about it. Or just we force people to do it, even if it wasn't ever tested like it should have been. Am I talking vaccines? Yes, I'm talking vaccines. So like, you want me to answer this question with the black and white and look at the planet we're on. (laughs) I just don't know. I don't know. You know, I would appreciate your thoughts. Thanks. When I was in the world, it seemed I used to escape reality. Yeah, see, that's the don't don't escape reality. Get into reality. See reality. Right. And now I desire to use the metro escape just for the aid they can provide in different areas. Well, again, well, what's that aid if it's not escape? Okay. Is the aid to be to come into greater contact with your reality? Um, I do not think at this point that any high dose of a, of a psychotic is going to be good for you outside of if they can figure out, honestly, if you have Christian doctors who can figure out how to stop alcoholism, I, I'm not going to say it's you eat this mushroom, I sit with you, we read the Bible for three hours, and you're not an alcoholic anymore. How am I going to say this is wrong? I don't Show me, Lutherans, tell me where drunkenness, okay, stop watching movies then. I mean, your body's sitting there like a potato. You know, you, our arguments don't work unless they're from the Bible. And that's, that's the issue. So if you want to talk idolatry, right? Idolatry. You want to talk about a hatred of neighbor. You want to talk about stealing. You want to talk about lying. You want to talk about covetousness and idolatry. Again, the escape, the attempt to escape. So a medical usage of something, in my mind, is one that is, is uh, fatherly overseen, right? It is, it is there for the good of the one under. Now, microdosing, I don't know anything about this. This is what they're studying at Johns Hopkins. So you'd have to go look at this and then you have to trust the researchers, right? Which is something we've learned you don't necessarily want to do. But microdosing would mean you would not be having psychotic effects from this, right? Microdosing is that you're going to take this this mushroom that grows out of the ground and you're going to eat a little tiny bit of it every day because it just, it just feels better. You know, like chocolate. Like coffee. Because if you only eat a little bit, nothing happens if you feel better, right? So like, like I can't tell you that's wrong. It's wrong to go and buy it from a black market trade that also sells sex slaves across America, you know, running out of the out of Mexico and, and the cartels. I mean, that, that's wrong. How are we even going to talk about this to anybody, right? Our kids are out there in this stuff. We got a heroin addiction problem in America. Goodness, I hope the pagans figure out how to use this stuff to knock their kids off heroin. Otherwise, we're just going to have like heroin addicts lying around everywhere. I mean, they're not going to go away. The state's going to eventually do what they do in Denmark, take care of them probably. And one way, don't they have to? Or just have them move to California, New York? Again, the homeless thing. So, like, super clear. I, I do not recommend anybody who's not in the study at Johns Hopkins or something like it actually dosing, right? Don't do it. However, to pray for, to study, to look for, to understand 
how we may have underestimated the medicinal, the actual medicinal value of things that grow out of the ground for dealing with the complexities of modern life and childhood traumas that it has created while we throw ourselves back into the word of God as Christians, um, right? Drunkenness is when you overdose on something. Uh, drunkenness is when you overdose on something that, that, that kind of is drunkenness, right? Uh, alcohol is not bad for the first drink. It's the second, the third, the fourth. That's it's when it gets bad, right? So, uh, and this is a, a line from Tim Ferriss here too. It's just a, um, this is a science line, but he's right. Uh, that the dosage makes the poison. Many things that are healing will poison you if you take too many of them. Water. Try to have too much water all at one time. You'll die, right? Not We don't usually call that poison, but the, it illustrates the point. And so these substances, they can't be evil just because they're substances, right? Like, like, so you have this mushroom growing out of the ground in the forest and like there's like dark fairies there or something, right? I mean, maybe, but, but it's, it's nature. It's like a tree, right? And if you eat the bark of the tree, it's going to do one thing to you. Eat the mushrooms going to do another thing to you. But if you can figure out that you can cook the bean, you can roast it and grind it up and you can strain some stuff through it, water, and then you can put a little stevia in it and sip it and it tastes so good. Well, then you've, you've found a good gift from God, right? I don't know if this is that. I didn't say that. Okay? So don't take me as saying this is that. I'm saying your argument against that you have to make against coffee. So find a better argument. My argument would be, again, uh, anything that's going to cause you to lose full focus if it's used as medicine, like morphine is when you're putting someone into surgery, well, then we're doing it with more than just me dosing myself, lest I find myself escaping into fantasy. And that there are other types of creation that do not lead to that level of psychotic usage, that they, they don't make you like out of reality. Um, they, they may ex, uh, open reality, coffee, again, sugar. Um, uh, wheat has a particular effect on our minds as well. Uh, wheat Belly is a good book that diagnoses that a bit. It crosses the bloodline barrier, which most other foods don't do. Um, uh, which actually has really cool implications for the Lord's Supper, by the way, because alcohol also crosses the blood-brain barrier. I almost did a chapter on this on Without Flesh, but it was just too, it's, it's too new. It's not really, you know, firm. But, and, and so hence my answer to your question, right? You're asking a question that's radical. I'm giving you a somewhat of a radical answer is that we don't have any way to argue about this or talk about this, aside from shouting about drugs being bad because the Reagans did. And well, in that culture, I was just pumped full of drugs. So I, including the sugar and the wheat. So I, I, I just can't, like just yell that anymore. And I have to look at each thing individually and each case individually. I will say, you know, so self-medicating means you're escaping. Like if you are self-medicating, you are escaping. How bad is your escape to coffee? Do you need to repent of it and never have coffee again? Because you realize that when you sip your coffee, you're actually escaping from pain. We're all doing this. The question is what's hap- what's happening in your world around you. So if you're going to like dose the LSD and end up walking through traffic, looking at butterflies that aren't there, like this is problematic. Right? This ain't good. If you're gonna drink until you fall asleep because you're so drunk, this isn't good, right? So, you know, if you're gonna drink so much coffee, <laughs> well, that you uh, that you need your coffee and you get in a car wreck because you're reaching for it. Again, right? Uh, dosage makes the poison. Dosage makes the poison. So there's my my attempt to help with this and uh, the theology that I would say this is behind. I don't believe that God created anything on the planet evil, including the electricity, even though. 
seems to be pretty weird stuff. But the um, <laughs> I don't think he made any of it evil. He created the creation good. The creation fell under Adam. Adam's head is the biggest problem. His heart, you know, is his soul is the is the problem. Um, so it's what we do with the things we find, and how we use them as idols to again reject God, try to escape from the reality and make a different reality than the one He has given us. But if the one he has given us, he's given you a nice cup of coffee. I, I don't know that that's a problem. Now we live in a time of turmoil with this question, and I hope I've given you enough. I, I, I can't do more than that. Um, there is nothing morally wrong with putting something into your body that changes the chemistry in your brain. Like if, if that's your argument, you don't know how your body works. <laughs> I, everything, everything. Um, and so like... You know, as we sit here, couch potatoes, eating McDonald's and, and you know, uh, shooting uh, insulin into ourselves and we want to yell at some guy who's going to microdose psilocybin because it just he can live his life normally when he does. I, I just I feel like we need a better platform. Yeah, better platform than don't do drugs. Don't do drugs, but buy our pharmaceuticals. Love it. <laughs> do the drugs we put you on that are experimental and cost a lot of money and maybe kill you. And not the ones that can't kill you. You know, you can't, you cannot die on psilocybin. I'll say this. Uh, I mean, I test the science. Don't go eat three pounds. But my understanding of it is that even if you were to like overdose on these mushrooms, all you would do is fall asleep and then wake up. And so the real way that they would do damage to you is you're so unaware of your reality that you like walk out on the street and get killed, which is why, again, having it done in a, a care facility makes sense. That's why the scientists would do it that way and not just send you home with Tylenol, right? is because you 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 are a danger to yourself as drunkenness will always be. So but whenever I say that I I I keep wrestling with this one in my head, you know. What does it mean to go into a dark room and just check out for 2 hours or 4 hours and just not be there? I mean, your mind isn't drunk. Is drunkenness just about your mind? Is that what it is? Is the problem with drunkenness your mind? I mean, how enlightened are we? How rationalistic are we? Um Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. How many did I lose there, there in the last bit? Oh, you stuck around. Um, so uh, it's it's a tough issue. And by no means do I consider what I just said to be the final thing. But I think the conversation needs to happen. And it ain't going to happen if no one talks about it. And so someone's got to be wrong first if you're mad. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's just, it's just not that simple. And in real time, I'm watching people wrestle with this in Illinois as recreative stuff comes in. And I don't know how to tell them it's any wronger than a lot of other things that they're doing. Um, other than the drunkenness thing, which isn't just using it. It, it, it isn't, uh, but with things like a full dose of psilocybin, it might be, or, well, I, I don't know. People have different experiences with different chemicals as well. And that's why there's varieties. It's a long story and I don't want to be the one who has to argue about it. What I want is for us to just recognize that it's happening across our country and Christians are exploring the things that are made illegal because, well, they're gaslit and they're just going to do it anyway. So we need to find a way to talk about it and don't do drugs because the Reagans is not going to win anybody to our side. So um, take that if you if you like want to push back on me more. We just you need more clarity then on the issue. Right. And we certainly need to be able to say about all the things that are destroying our bodies that we should not do them. We can't just say don't do these drugs. You, you can't say that you have to, you have to apply it to everything. Right. So, so when you, when you got people who are living on the morphine drip for the last, uh, I don't know, five years of their life, it's heroin, right? You know that, right? Like, so why is that okay? Right. So 
if we're going to be Christians, we need to be consistent with the ethic we put on people's consciences. That's where I'm at with this one too. So, all right, everybody, you have a great Saturday afternoon. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, which is why I'm unafraid to talk about this to you. Honestly, I, I, if he were not my God, I would not want to be this vulnerable just having this conversation because I live in a church body where people like attack you, like like physically, like file reports against you, right? And so it's been a while, but it still could happen. And it, it, to me, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We're not talking enough. And so we've got to have these conversations and they need to be based on the certainty that we're baptized into Jesus Christ, that he is our king, that we are here not for ourselves, but because the, we expect the end of the world. And if it doesn't come, we want our children to expect the end of the world in his name. Yeah, And pushing on that, through the language of the Bible, particularly the gateway drug of the Bible, the Psalms and the Proverbs, recognizing Jesus Christ is the Lord God of those things and using his name. All of this, I believe, is is far more important than making sure they don't sell pot in your neighborhood. Goodness. I mean, I'm not saying go smoke the pot, but they're, you know, they've been selling alcohol in your neighborhood for a long time. And people who drink alcohol do violent, vicious things. Normally, when you're high, you just sit there. People just go and they just sit there. Now, I'm not saying that's good. They watch TV. Yes, I'm trying to get you to do less of that, right? But but the point being, like, I'm more worried, honestly, about every bar on the corner than I am about the one pot shop in town. Even though, I mean, I get it. There's, there's evil everywhere. Evil people do evil things. But if you think you're going to save your city by stopping pot, that's how you get jails full of people that don't need to be in jail, right? Right? And then that's how you get a system that's breaking and being, anyway, anyway, a brief history of power, brief history of power. What we have to do is deal with one-on-one people where they are and find out what's your idol, what you need to repent of, and how can Jesus encourage you to know you're resurrected today? Yes. So that you might, oh, uh, how's it go? Lift up your eyes. All the more as you see his return approaching and not wallow in the muck with those who have no hope. My name, you know my name, otherwise you wouldn't be here. Uh, You can find me at revfist.com. Send your questions there to the context. Send your need for information to the newsletter subscription page. Uh, Send your Patreon support to patreon.com slash revfisk. That is how I do all of this. And I I was thinking about that one again too. I don't want to, I hate selling myself for money, but um, that income is important. Oh, here's what, taxes. Every penny the U.S. government gave me this year, they took back. They, like, paid my taxes for me. <laughs> I mean, I, I can maybe I didn't self-report enough ahead of time. I, there's, there's a long story behind that, too. We're going to over-report this year. But what I find really, really funny is, like, the government gave me all this money. I'm like, oh, I can probably do some stuff. And then... They took it all back. And so, yeah, I really do rely on Patreon. Like I have my job where I preach and I teach and I help the people try not to fight with each other and stay there. Right. Uh, and then I do this. And with this, you get Mad Monday's newsletter. You get um, you get Brief History of Power with, with Dr. Koontz. You get the show uh, on multiple venues. Uh, the way you can help me continue doing this and just not worry about it is support me on Patreon. It's just part of my paycheck. It goes in and here's my vow to you. Here's my promise to you. Whatever goes in is going to be used to do what I'm telling you to do where you are, where I am. I'm not sitting here on my duff investing in my own entertainment. I am not sitting here putting my feet up and saying I've made it because people listen to me on the internet. I am reinvesting right now in my kids and my house more than anything with the belief though that they're going to invest in their neighborhood and their church, right? That they're going to pick up on this, right? So you want to support that where I am, 
Patreon's the way to do it, uh, or you can move here and, and help out. It's a great neighborhood just waiting to be taken over. There's a lake right outside the window, and a house goes up for sale every couple of months. Uh, they're all retiring and leaving away. So it's, you know, and the church is right there. You can walk to church in the event of no no cars. Um, it's like it's prepped to survive the coming darkness. Uh, I don't even know if the coming darkness is here, but if we had a bunch of us here without coming darkness, we could look south to where there's a lot of darkness already and make a difference. But that's a long story, long story. Um, thank you all so much for supporting when you do, uh, those of you who've jumped on, I I can't say thank you enough again, because what, what I don't want to do is be the guy who's worried about tomorrow and what I need to do to make all the profit work so that I can feel safe studying the Bible this morning. Like, so, so right over there on my desk, I have my one year lectionary and I have a, uh, Kylan Dalich's Minor Prophets Commentary. And it is my full intention, as soon as I stop talking to y'all, gone a little over time today, um, uh, as soon as I stop talking to y'all, the beauty of my life as a pastor that you help, that you support, is that now, after doing this for you, I get to sit down and I get to read on uh, Zephaniah so that I can preach on it tonight and tomorrow. And I just get to imbibe that in order to share, right? Now, your pastor where he is, in theory, this is what he gets to do too, but my guess is the clock has made him do less of it than he wants. You can encourage him. You can encourage him in that regard. Um, but if you don't have that, again, you need to find that. You need to find a pastor who does that. If all you got is me right now, thanks for the support, but actually don't send me money unless you're going to church. <laughs> I don't want to I don't want to be dipping like that, but uh, um, thank you. It, it does make what I'm doing here uh, something that I, I just know I've got a great cloud of witnesses behind me. Uh, I know I've got a group that whenever I put a sermon, here's, here's another example, right? So I'm really trying to encourage this group to see themselves as a hub for the future. And they're small and they just came out of a collapsing large congregation. So that their identity is a little muffled and, and they're not as big as they think they are. And so I look at them too. And it's like, okay, there's only 120 of us. What are we going to be? Actually, I think it's a great number for right now. We can really learn who we are and then try to help after that. But um, anyway, uh, oh, I lost it. It's been three hours. You gotta. If I lose my way twice in three hours, you gotta forgive a guy. <laughs> um, uh, uh, but that's just it. Uh, putting putting my belief into believing that this congregation is here in order to grow with the same word I'm sharing with you, and then seeing the numbers of you latch on and continue to watch, so that I know the sermons are getting viewed by more people and all this. That just presses the worker further. Right. It just, it just inspires the worker further. Um, so, you know, we're going to take something from this before I close, close entirely, go up to your pastor this week and, um, just tell him how glad he's your pastor and try to be specific. Try to be specific. Uh, it's pastors get a lot of good sermon. We get a lot of that and it doesn't mean much really. Cause most people who say it, if you ask, they're like something you're like, you didn't even say <laughs> you're like, but so, so, you know, a good sermon is fine. It's fine. They don't not say good sermon. Um, but if you really want to make your pastor feel better, uh, say pastor, <laughs> I'm so glad you teach me. I'm glad to be taught by you. Um, that'll, that'll do him one. That'll do him one real good. And together, knowing that you are both risen, standing, immortal already, just waiting for it all to be revealed. The sons of God exploding across creation. You can stand amidst the ruins and not wallow in the muck with those who have no Hope. Catch y'all next time. Rock on.
Was that worth a dollar? Click the Patreon link in the show notes to sign up. Pretty please? <laughs>